Here we go. Fourth and goal from the three. Ryan to the end zone. Deflected and picked off by Roman Harper. <laughs> All right, let's peel back the curtain a little bit. Don, set up your war room for a football Sunday. Tell me about week one, Sunday. Who was there? What was on the TV? How many TVs? What did you watch? Take me through football Sunday at the Beavers, Don. All right. Week one. The big TV gets the Bills game. We live in Buffalo. That's the way that works. And all day this week, probably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah great it, game. Sometimes, we'll talk about that more. Yeah, but, sometimes yeah. in the past, uh, the Bills game would get tra- – changed in favor of whatever the other game is or the red zone and then i have a smaller 32 inch tv that i bring down from my bedroom set up next to it that gets the red zone uh my brother was there for most of the day uh actually my other brother showed up too with his lady and my niece so there were people in and out all day long it was uh it was a good day for football so not so much for my football team i guess what'd you eat is there special football food involved what did we have we ended up ordering subs okay from where? Franco's. Okay, see, people listening to this are probably like, oh, they had Subway. Oh, no, yeah, no, no, no. That's not what we eat when no. we eat subs in, in Buffalo. No. Yeah. All right, welcome to uh, Season 3, Episode 26 of the Sportscaster, September 10th, 2013, Brother Greg Birthday Day. Happy yes. Br- happy birthday, that, Greg. Yeah. Uh, great show for you today. Kenny Albert, the guy in that clip who called the Saints and Falcons game, is going to be on the show today. Give us a first-hand perspective of what it's like to call an opening day NFL game. And the kind of the cool thing about Kenny is he's called the opening day game in New Orleans back-to-back years now, so we should get a real interesting perspective on how things are the same or different now that Coach Payton is there as opposed to last year when Coach Payton was gone. Also, we're going to have Lee Jenkins on the show, one, because Richard Deitch asked for it last week, <laughs> and two, because he had a fantastic cover story on the Pirates on last week's Sports Illustrated, and he also had a article that trended a little bit on Lamar Odom and oh, uh, yeah. his kind of fall from grace if he was ever in grace. Sure, right. I don't know. We'll talk to him about that and also kind of get the pulse of the L.A. sports scene after a disastrous opening game for USC uh, last week. They lost at home to Washington, and it was ugly. Yeah. And uh, we'll do all that. Also, we got five on fantasy, which will be fun today as we can kind of react or overreact to the things that happened in the first week of the season. And we'll close out the show uh, with one last thing, but we got a lot to get to in three things. So let's get it started. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, we start where we start every week, probably during the football season, unless something crazy happens, uh, with the NFL and opening season or opening week. Yeah, opening night Thursday. Yeah, Peyton show. 
It sure was. I actually didn't make it through that game. I think I had early work the next day, and when I went to bed, it was 17-14 Ravens. So you went to bed at half. I did go to bed at the half, yep. yeah. And uh, Close game at that point, kind of back sure. and forth. Yeah, the Ravens didn't look great. Joe Flacco, I thought, looks really... For a guy that I know people give him a bunch of crap for saying he's the best in the league or whatever, he looks like a rookie. Uh, running one way, throwing across the field the other way. There was a... One play where two Broncos corners basically tripped on themselves to pick a ball off and didn't. Uh, but, yeah, then Peyton took over in the second half and ended up throwing, for a record, tying seven touchdowns. It was unbelievable to watch it happen. I mean, it was basically like Broncos offense hits the field, pass, 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 touchdown pass. Yep. Broncos offense hits the field, we'll run the ball once, we'll pass, 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 touchdown pass. I mean, it, there were some people tweeting early in the game that it looked like Peyton was floating the ball a bit. Yeah, and I heard that going into the game, that people thought his arm strength might be weakening. But he erased all that in, with his performance in the second half, yeah. which is as good as it gets. But, I mean, are we really surprised that the NFL opened with Peyton Manning and he killed it? No, I mean, they're probably the odds-on favorite to win the Super Bowl. I know the odds-on favorite in the AFC. The Ravens, uh, people think they're going to be down this year. They look down a bit. I, yeah, I don't know if you want to beat them up too much for playing that team, but they're going to struggle. Uh, luckily, so is Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Cincinnati. Well, Cincinnati shouldn't struggle, but that might be their competition there. So, And then it was two days of waiting, and then finally Sunday came around, and bam, 10 games at 1 o'clock right off the bat. Let's start with the Bills and Patriots, and I'll give you my sort of, I guess, unbiased uh view and I watched quite a bit of the game actually the Saints game ended there was still about seven minutes left in the fourth quarter in the Bills game so I saw all of that and I every time the Saints game went to commercial I flipped over to the Bills game on my one TV and I kept red zone on the other TV pretty much straight through but man what a bummer yeah I mean it just it felt like they had them you know they had them they had them they had them they had them and then they didn't yeah, Aaron Schatz does uh, the advanced statistics, and apparently he tweeted during the game about how bad the Bills were being outplayed, and then the next day he looked at like his advanced stats and thought, actually, no, I, I changed my mind about that. The Bills probably should have won that game based on the way they played. Uh, I, I know this isn't going to be a good year for the Bills, or I wouldn't have expected it to be if the Patriots came out and beat them 30-20 to 20, and it wasn't nearly as close. I would have been okay with that. And I'm actually okay with most of what I saw. Uh, yeah, there's some great things to take away. What? You know, EJ got his first touchdown pass. Woods caught his first touchdown pass. The third uh, of Stevie Johnson was beautiful, too. The second right. touchdown Yeah, that was, was beautiful. Really throw. nice. He had a really nice pass uh, right up the middle to yeah. Woods that was negated by a, a holding or illegal hands of the face. Too many penalties. Stevie Johnson thing. is something I wanted to bring up to you. He talks a lot, and he's fun. Yeah, yeah. He's a good – he's fun. I don't dislike him for his talking. Right. But if you're going to talk about how nobody can cover you, you might want to catch You it. might want to catch the ball in the fourth quarter when there is no one around you and you can extend a drive that would take more time off the clock and right. give your team a new set of downs and put your team in a position to possibly win the game. That's one that, as a fan, you got to be kind of – a little bit bummed. Yeah, and then the day after, he's kind of trying to explain it away. Like He's trying to educate the fans on how that wasn't as easy a catch as it appeared. And Even if it's not, it's one you want him to make. Someone who talks that much needs to make that catch. Sure. 
I mean, right, that's yeah. not like diving for a ball out of bounds and you got to get feet in and someone's about to hit you. I mean, it was pretty much him in the open field. Yeah, and I love everything I've heard from the coaching staff in the offseason. Uh, watching Chip Kelly last night, I feel like the Bills are like the Chip Kelly light playbook. I hated the punt on uh, fourth and like two at the, or their own 40 or something like that. That's, that's a terrible spot to punt. That's real conservative. TMQ, uh, Greg Easterbrook bashed them for that, and rightfully so. He's called that the, mo- the worst punt of the day. Totally agree. You're an underdog. Uh, you've got a new coaching staff. Go out. Be aggressive. What do you have to lose this year? What? Nobody expects them to do anything. That, you, have to, you have to go for it there. And let's talk about the Saints game a little bit because we can talk about a similar criticism for the Saints. And basically the Falcons came out, took a 10-0 lead, and – Pretty quickly, and I remember thinking with maybe about 10 or 11 minutes left in the second quarter, thinking, you know what, the Falcons are just a better team. They're better on defense, and they're better than on offense right now, and they're going to win this game. And then it all changed. Julio Jones fumbled the ball. He should he had no business fumbling. Yeah, uh, He caught the ball kind of going from left of the TV to right on the TV, kind of on the sideline. He's kind of cut in towards the middle of the field, and Malcolm Jenkins, who made a horrible play, on the 50-yard catch that Harry Douglas had to set up their first touchdown, knocked the ball out. Jones got to hold on to that ball, and that kind of changed the game. I think two plays later, Breeze hits Colston for a touchdown, which was vintage Breeze to Colston, and it also was the catch that made Colston now the all-time leader in catches, touchdown catches, and touchdowns in Saints history. Yeah, I saw you tweeted something like, Greatest of all time. Yeah, he's the greatest Saints receiver of For all Saints, time. Right. Yeah. Done. That that conversation's over. Who was it before him? Maybe Eric Joe Martin. Horn. Oh, Eric Martin. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but um, the 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 interesting part about this game was one, uh, it was like every Saints and Falcons game in the sense that it went down to the last possession because that's what these teams do. Right. Regardless, really, of who's good or who's bad, these games come down to the end. The Carolina games are similar in that sense, as well. Uh, but. Peyton went for a fourth and one from about midfield in the first quarter, the second possession the Saints had, and he called the run to Ingram, which was blown up. And Ingram had no chance. Ingram was terrible in the game, but that wasn't one of his bad runs. That was blown up. He had no chance to go anywhere. Uh, And the defense kind of showed Peyton, kind of gave Peyton some, you know, backed him up there a bit and held them to a field goal on the short field. But then late in the game, they're up three, and they're probably at the Falcons' 40. No, a little, eh, right around there. A little closer, maybe. And it's a fourth and two. Yeah, much closer than the 40. Probably inside guess, the 20. Yeah, in the I was going to look up the length of the field yeah, goal. Yeah, it was real. They were in, they were in the 20, red zone. It was for a 22 sure. yard yeah. field goal. Yep. Okay, so it's a fourth and two, maybe in a short two. Probably with a better spot, it would have been a fourth and one. And they line up to go for it. And then it's one of these things where they're kind of trying to draw him off sides. And Breeze got him, and he didn't snap it. Oh, really? Yeah, the guy jumped, but he got back before Breeze snapped it. So Breeze calls a timeout, which if you're not going to go for it, don't call the timeout. Back up five yards and kick the field goal in case you need that timeout. Yeah, so they're saying at the Atlanta four. Okay, yeah, that's right. They were in the red zone for sure. They were definitely in the red zone. Um, And it was a short two. And the thing there is, is if you get it, if you get the first down, it's probably better than the touchdown. Right. You pretty much run the game out. If you get the touchdown, you probably won the game. Right. What And if you miss it, it's first and 96. Right. 
right? So first and ninety six up three, and chances are Atlanta plays to tie. Right? Yeah, These Mike, teams always play yeah, to tie. Mike Shope said right? that on Twitter that a lot of the mentality changes, like being down six, like they ended up. You have to score they a have touchdown. To score, more and they, almost, they almost did. I mean, barring that last highlight we played at the beginning, they played to score a touchdown because they had to. The Saints' defense on that drive, though, was exactly what they need to be. They gave up the yards, but when the Falcons got the Falcons had first and goal inside the ten yard line, and I think first down was uh, incomplete to Harry. Incomplete. Douglas. Second down was a short reception, Variety maybe three White. yards. Yep, four yards. Yep. Third down was an incompletion to Jackson, right? Which uh, Ryan threw wide on pressure. And then fourth down, they got pressure again. Vicaro tipped the ball, which was basically a prayer, a throw-up, because right, right. he was going to get sacked. And Roman Harper, who was responsible for both turnovers, played really well, actually, in the game, uh, sealed the deal. But So you could make a statement that the Bills and the Saints probably Right, both coaches that are for known those. for being a little bit aggressive, too. Yeah, we're talking least. about a, call, a coach who made the most aggressive call in the history of the Super Bowl, probably. Right. Uh, real quick, back to the Bills game. The one thing I think that I was pleasantly surprised about was the play of their corners. I know the Patriots are playing basically guys yeah, out of the stands in, and Bird. No Bird either. Mm-hmm. So decimated secondary. Jim Leonard, who they just signed, playing a lot of time. The secondary looked really good. And they held the Patriots to 23 points. And I can't complain much about that. And the Saints defense was historically bad last year. They proved they won't be historically bad. Right. They're going to be good enough probably to keep the Saints in every game. And like you said, if they can be middle of the road, the Saints are going to be good. Do you worry at all that the Saints only put up 23? Not really. I think the first quarter you felt like it was kind of a feeling out type of thing. You know, the Falcons got 10 points in part because they broke a 50-yard play on a bad play by Jenkins. Okay. Like that play was defended well. Probably should have been a 7-yard catch, but Jenkins takes a bad angle. It turns into 50. Uh and then they got the other three points on the um, the last, the because of the uh, turnover on downs. Oh, okay, but no, I, I thought the offense was fine. And Breeze comes up to the podium. First thing we were one for three in the red zone. That's got to be better. First thing he says out of his yep. mouth. Me threw for three hundred fifty-seven. So yeah, no, the offense will be fine. Uh, Pierre Thomas continues to look just really good. I be I think I want Mark Ingram to be the guy. I just don't think he's better than Pierre Thomas. No, averaged almost five yards a carry. Got nine carries. And, and man, can he run a screenplay. Yeah, he's Peter definitely going to. Thomas is one of the best I've seen at that screen. Um, Bengals-Bears, anything to talk about there? Both teams expected to be pretty good this year. A.J. Bears. Green's a freak, and so is Brandon Marshall. Yeah, Bears win at home by three. I mean, that's probably a pick em game where you give the home team a three-point advantage. So that's... Bengals should have won it. Yeah. They're up 21-10 in the third quarter. They gave that Oh, game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, should have won right. it. Uh, Dolphins Browns not a whole lot there. The Browns are not as good as I thought they'd yeah, be, especially I'm Brandon Whedon. I'm a little surprised how little the Browns did on offense. That and they, I don't know if they wore down by the end. They, it was Too many a tight picks. game all game. Yeah. Uh, Vikings Lions. Wow. One of the most delightful things of the Sunday is that Adrian Peterson gets one touch and takes it 78, 78 yards. yards. I mean, yep. it's just so cool. You know, when you got a guy who. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But then for the rest of the day, the, the Lions, I heard that they had an eight-man box in almost 30% of the plays, and the league average is 10% of the plays. Wow. When, when did the Vikings give up on Christian Ponder? Hopefully quick. He was bad. You know, it was interesting. Uh, plenty quarterbacks that you would have expected to be better weren't, and several quarterbacks that you expected to not be as good were better. 
Like, what I mean is Whedon, Gabbert, and Ponder are all examples of guys that showed a little bit better improvement in in the preseason and totally looked as bad as we thought they were. I'm looking up who their backup is. Is Oh, they have Matt Castle. Castle. They might want to give him a chance. Yeah, I don't see why not. Uh, Adrian... He's maybe the best ever. We there's no bigger Adrian fans than we talk. We talk about more than anybody on this show. But 93 yards rushing after might, a 78, after a 78 yard yarder. Run. 18 carries. First of all, is not enough. He has to be no. over closer to 25 every week. And it was a close game. too. Yeah, 93 carries just not enough. Or 18 carries for 93 yards not enough. And as bad as the game sort of was for him, he walks away with a hat trick and touchdowns. Yeah, it's crazy. So. Yeah. Uh, He's another got? guy who's going to get that GOAT headline before it's all done. Yeah, sure seems like yeah. it. Stafford with a nice game, too. Reggie Bush with a big game. We'll Reggie Bush is, is something we'll have to, Yeah, we'll talk about him in 5 on Fantasy. Raiders-Colts, anything there? Uh, Pryor is much better than I thought in terms of he is ugly to look at, Yep, but he doesn't stop trying to make a play. He Every would, play, you have to... You have to make sure you finish every play with him. Till the Monday night game, he was the leading rusher in the league. Right, yeah. 112 yards. And uh, that's because he competes really hard. I, he's a guy that you could see getting better. I don't know how good he can be, but he's going to get better, I would think. Sure, he's at least fun to watch there. Yeah. And uh, if I'm the Colts, I'm a little bit – if I'm a Colts fan, I'm a little bit worried that – Yeah, that didn't go great, but some positives. Andrew Luck is really quickly becoming one of the guys that you want to have the ball – like. One of the top oh, yeah, guys yeah. in the league in the end. They said he started like 18 games in his career, has like seven fourth-quarter comebacks right. already. It's I ridiculous. Mean, and this time he does it with his legs, too. Jets-Buccaneers, it's another kind Oof. of terrible game. Uh, Ex-Buffalo Bill, Ryan Lindell kicks the game-winning field goal. One until... thing I will say, Geno Smith is a little bit better than I thought. Geno Smith, for me, better than I thought. is like Pryor. He's probably a little more talented, too. So I guess if you're the Jets, this is what you want. If you're... As a Jets fan, and I know what it's like to expect terrible things from a team because I'm a Bills fan. As a Jets fan, you're probably expecting an awful season. Why not put the exciting young quarterback in, see what he can do? And if, if you flame out, then you draft uh, Teddy Bridgewater. Right, and you know what I think we've all overlooked because he's kind of a clown and maybe not the best head coach? Rex Ryan can coach defense. Oh, yeah. And that defense, I mean, of course, it's Josh Freeman who's maybe another example of a guy who maybe we expect a little bit of progression from that. Looked worse, but they played great defense all day, and then the Buccaneer linebacker makes the bonehead play of the weekend on the uh, personal foul on the sidelines to give the Jets a chance to kick that winning field goal. And they they had to call. Oh yeah, too. oh that's a, uh, that's not a weak one. No, that's uh, all day, every day call. And I'm really, we'll get to this probably in five on fantasy too, but I'm worried if I own any Buccaneers really. Uh, Vincent Jackson had a nice day. He's going to get a lot of catches. He'll be all right. But that I'd be worried about Martin. I think. Yeah, that team is is going to be bad. Uh, speaking of bad teams, Titans Steelers. Yep. Uh, you talked to Dave yeah. last yeah. week, and we brought up like, Barnwell. Maybe had him, the Steelers in the Super Bowl. It was Bedard, Greg Bedard, oh, Bedard. from Sports Illustrated. Uh, Monday morning quarterback. That's not going to happen. No, my number one last week in over unders was the Steelers under, if you recall. Right, and I'm a little disappointed. I didn't bet my house on it right now. Right, I mean they look terrible. They were spotted two points and the weirdest opening day opening kickoff play maybe ever. It's funny, Red Zone showed that, and I kind of looked over at it and thought that didn't look right, and then looked away 
And then next thing I knew, it was two nothing. Yeah. I'm like, oh, they did catch him for a safety I'm, there. I'm not. I didn't know what that rule was because it's the type of thing. Like, I know if you catch the ball in bounds, but your momentum takes you into the end zone, you can down it. But he stepped forward. But he never left the end zone. His foot got out. His one foot did, but yeah. his one was in. So I don't. And I don't know if maybe because the ball was bouncing. I wouldn't be shocked if the player didn't know the rule. He probably didn't. It didn't look like he did. It yeah. looked like he pretty confidently took the ball and downed it. Right. He might have lost kind of sight of where he was on the field, too, a little bit. But, yeah, at one point there were two 2 nothing games with the Steelers, and uh, I think the Jags had one, too, maybe. Yep, and at one point there were six touchdowns and three field goals, or three safeties. Yeah. In the day. Crazy. But, yeah, those both of those teams are really bad. Uh, and the Steelers lost three guys to IR in that game. This is the tough thing for me if you're the Steelers. I mean, granted, they got their Super Bowl uh Two of them. Two of them. So there's that. I mean, this is the end of that that dynasty. Or not dynasty. You can't call them a dynasty. But this is the end of that The window that of opportunity gonna, for that group is, is, is gone. Uh, so I don't know what you watch for if you're a Steelers fan this year. You know what I mean? Like, I know the Bills will be bad, but there's it's all youth there. Yeah, they got six trophies in their case. Right. I'm not so, going to feel too bad No, for I'm them. not going to feel bad for them. But the Titans, on the other hand, they're in the same boat. See what Locker can do this year. If it's nothing, move on. But they look they look terrible, too. The Titans don't look very good. That was an ugly game. Yeah. That's a Greg Williams defense, right, the Titans? Yeah, and, and they, they were probably the star of it. Yeah. So, I mean, their D might be better than expected, but they're going to have a tough time in that division. Yeah. Seahawks-Panthers uh, – Panthers maybe had a more impressive showing than you think. Not on offense, but Seattle's going to do that to a lot of people this year. But they held Seattle to a 12-7 game. Uh, it's tight. Good tight defensive game. Seattle should have lost if D'Angelo Williams doesn't fumble. And he actually had a decent day. Inside the 10-yard line. Yeah. They're gonna w- Carolina's probably going to win that game. Yeah, I mean, this game was... Seahawks, you're never going to love... At a one o'clock Sunday game on the East Coast, it seems like right. More yeah, than that's any true. Team yep. they always struggle in those games, always. Yep. And this was another example, but they're good enough to pull it out. Marshawn didn't look good at all. Lynch, Wilson looked good in Wilson, a tough, yep. tough game. He goes twenty-five for thirty-three, over three hundred, a touchdown, and no picks. So, yeah, they're going to be good. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about no. probably either team as far as that game goes. Chiefs, Jags. Jags are, oh my god. You talked about them a little bit earlier about how they might be better, or you would hope Gabbard be a little bit better because of the way he was was in the preseason. Yeah, and they're already going to bench him. I hear they're going. He's injured, I guess. Oh, he's injured. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, but all they could manage was two points on defense and uh, pump block. That was it. Yeah, pump block. 28 to 2. Chiefs look good. Uh, Jamal Charles looks good. Yeah, he got banged up a little bit. He always gets, banged. but he could have played. They were just so sure, far ahead. Yeah. There was no reason. Yeah, they could. They might. They might be good. I mean, it's gonna be tough to get. They're a sneaky team. Rams had a big comeback. Great day for Sam Bradford. I felt great for him in the sense that this is the kind of win you would have never expected out of him or that team in years past. Double digits down going into the fourth quarter, you get the fourteen points and win the game at home against a team. You should beat if you want to take that next step that I think that they want to take. And yeah, Jared Cook, everyone's kind of fantasy darling for years that maybe people have given up on, had a real, real nice day. So And when Bradford was at his best at Oklahoma, it was when Jermaine Gresham was healthy. He yeah. is a much better quarterback with a tight end. I mean, Bradford's never had healthy players. His number one receiver has always been Donnie Avery, who can never make it. Or Amendola. 
Amendola, right. Yeah. He's got Chris, wow, we're going real long. Yeah. Uh, he's got Chris Givens now, who was pretty much blanketed by Peterson all game, but that's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. It opened up space for Cook. The run game didn't get too much done, but. And Austin showed a little, not a lot yet, sure. but he'll get better every week, so. Yeah, he's got some weapons there. This, I think this is a real barometer year for Bradford. Uh, he's had plenty of excuses. I'm not saying he made excuses, but he's had plenty of legitimate excuses for maybe why he hasn't succeeded. They're in that brutal division all of a sudden. That used to be a laughing stock, but this is his year. If he's going to show something, this is the time to do it. And that was a good start for him. 49ers-Packers, probably the game of the day. Yeah, great game. Uh, real chippy. Uh, San Fran... Outclass Green Bay. I was a little bit surprised. I thought the Packers would would come out for a little revenge this game. I would say they were outcoached. I think the Packers expected a lot of running after his 180 whatever yard playoff performance, and Kaepernick smoked him yep. through the air. Great game for Bolden, who's a, as we were we were saying before, he's a good football player. He knows how yeah. to play. He goes out there and he plays hard. Uh, really, just a brutal decision by Matthews there to just start the whole melee that was apparently oh. handed poorly. But just don't do that, and then yep. you're off the field. Yeah, the refs goal. did blow that call, and the ref admitted it today. And that, I mean, that's a tight game. It's a six-point game. Maybe that maybe that cost them the game. So, I mean, it, it was a tight game, and you'd like the refs to get that call right. But, but just don't yeah, it was shot a, the quarterback. That was terrible. Right. It, was, it was really bad. Uh, Cowboys, Giants, and what was an absolute just ugly disaster. On both yeah. sides of the field. I mean, turnover after turnover after turnover. Uh, David Wilson gets benched for two fumbles. Uh, the Cowboys get six turnovers at home, maybe seven, and still almost don't win. Yeah, it reminded me a little of the Bills-Cowboys game, except the Cow- the Bills were on the losing side. They picked Romo off right. like five times and somehow still managed to lose. In this game, the Cowboys had six or seven turnovers. And barely managed to win. They, they, it's almost like they threw it in cruise control. Not even the offense so much, but the defense just couldn't cover Victor Cruz. And he ends up scoring three TDs on them and uh, made a game out of a game that shouldn't have been won. And uh, crusty old Tom Coughlin goes overboard and benches David Wilson. Yeah, that was stupid. I mean, you got to – okay, two fumbles is bad. It's bad, right? But are you going to – you have nobody else. The guy they brought in is the Darrell reason. Scott. He, I mean, he blew the last turnover. Yep. Right? Wilson doesn't drop that like that. And, uh, you know, Eli had a few picks. You're going to bench him? Yeah. Aaron Schott, I listened to today, talked about this, too. And he's a numbers guy, and I don't know if there's really quantifiable numbers on this, but he just said, he goes, I, I don't get the mentality of a coach benching a player with fumbles. Like, how is he going to learn not to fumble from the bench? And maybe in Wilson's case, he had already fumbled twice. Maybe it's in his head. But you're putting an inferior talent on the field when you need him. Yeah, I think you got to go the other way. Let him redeem himself. And say, we still believe in you. Right. Get back out there. Hold the ball. That's not Coughlin's way. I've always hated him. For uh, He's the guy that his punter punts it and doesn't kick it out of bounds. And he just he blasts people publicly. He makes it about everybody but himself. I've never liked Coughlin, but... He's got, what, two Super Bowls, so yeah. he'll be there forever. Uh, the Redskins and the Eagles last night, the first thing I said at the end of the Eagles, or at the beginning of the, this game was, wow, the Eagles go fast. And that's great the first day. But a couple things I'd kind of caution about the Eagles. One, 
There's no way Michael Vick plays 16 games. Yeah, probably not. With that many plays. There's just no way. He got blasted a few times yesterday as it was. There's no way he's going to make it through. And another thing is, is that's great when you're scoring. But their defense got a little gassed in the second half yesterday. And the Redskins got back in the game a little bit. And I don't think it was because RG3 settled in or got any better. I just think they got gassed. And if you put a couple three and outs in there. Yeah, I think some of it... It was fast, and it's fun to watch, but it might be too fast. Some of it, what I think, was weird coaching in the second half, though, too. He, they started running a ton. Uh, and I know when you're up as much as you're up, you do want to clock manage a little bit there, but I think they took the foot off the gas a little bit. And, I mean, they got outscored 20-7 to in the second half after giving up nothing in the first half. It could the only easily points they gave up were nothing defensive. Right. right. Could have really easily been thirty-three nothing or forty nothing if they would have, or not. It could have been nineteen nothing in the first quarter if they don't call that a lateral and right. take that back. It's really interesting. I know Doug Marone. They'd use a quick offense, not the thirteen seconds between snaps, but they use the no huddle quick offense. And they say over time it benefits your team more to take more plays than it does then it hurts your defense when you get three and out. So, I mean, they have some numbers on it. It's really fun to watch. Yeah, uh, That was the most interesting game. What do you think about Griffin in the sense that he doesn't look healthy? I mean... He made some really bad throws, too. He just and he, I've seen a lot of people know more about this than me saying he He's wasn't stepping, stepping into, into the yep. throws. And I don't... I mean, that he just doesn't look right. It just doesn't look right. And no. to me, it's like... He didn't. They didn't have many design runs, if any. He's the he, guy you want there for 15 years or whatever. Like, get him healthy, and maybe he is. I mean, I don't know, but it just didn't look right to me, and I'm worried for him because he he's fun to watch. He's the guy you want in the league. Yeah, next week I think is a big week for him. If if this was rust, then fine. Uh, and it could be it, if he looks like he's kind of gingerly throwing the ball again next week. I'd have reasons for concern. The strange thing to me about this, too, is Cousins looked good last year in spot duty, and he would have had the whole preseason because uh, Griffin didn't play at all. He, he had, would have had the week leading up to this game to prepare for it. If, if Griffin's not right. I wonder if Adrian Peterson doesn't happen last year if Griffin plays yesterday. Like if Adrian Peterson has a normal season, doesn't have this freak eight-month return right. to greatness. But Griffin played in the playoffs last season, too. I well, mean, but they, he they tore rushed. his ACL in the playoffs. Oh, right. I mean, Remember, yeah. he went, his last play in that season was him right. horrifically blowing out his knee. Which they didn't think was they right at that point anyway. Like, right. they thought they rushed him back then. So, I don't know. We'll have to keep our eye on that. And then the last game of the week is the Chargers doing what the Chargers do. Getting the lead. And blowing, blowing the lead. And Yeah, I think the Chargers are going to be really bad. I'm a little worried if I'm the Texans. Uh, your defense should be better than... Four Philip Rivers TDs. I mean, they got they, the big pick six. Cushing, great play. Yeah, I'd be a little worried if I was the Texans. I I still don't love Matt Schaub. He, although he had a really nice game. Yeah, thirty four for forty five, three forty six, three TDs. Arian Foster didn't look great. He got eighteen carries. Any power? He was pouting on the sideline there when uh, Tate was Tate. getting some carries. Who had a much better average than him, which is almost always the case. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, people have said. Tate is the most important fantasy handcuff, and that's that's why he's he's a talented guy behind a even more talented guy. But I bet you 
this is a team that wants to win the Super Bowl. Like we're talking about windows and stuff. This is their window right now uh, with that excellent defense and Foster and Andre Johnson. They they might have to keep him fresh. I mean, he might be pouting a lot this year because Tate's there. He might as well use him. So, but I'd be I'd be a little concerned at the Chargers. I mean, it was a home game. I don't know. One week, I guess you shouldn't overreact. They got We're running one. really long, so I'm just gonna do. The, I'll do my last two real quick, and then you can grab the Robin one real quick. Uh, quick thing about college football. Uh, nothing crazy this week. Miami beat Florida in somewhat of a big game. Uh, Michigan. Uh. Michigan beat Notre Dame. Yep. Notre Dame was talking about how it's not a rivalry. It's not a rivalry. Which is ridiculous. Michigan said, well. I'm not a college guy. That's right. ridiculous. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, ESPN and ABC is doing a great thing showing the home teams entering the stadium on TV before well, the games. They did yeah. it with Clemson. They did it with Michigan. It's one of the coolest things. 118,000 people thunderstruck by ACDC playing and the team running in. It was a crazy yeah, scene. This week is a huge week in college football with the Manziel and A&M versus Alabama game. It's 3.30 CBS. And one last thing for me uh, before we move on in the show. The U.S. Open tennis wrapped up this weekend. And the one thing I wanted to say about it is Nadal and Serena Williams were the champions. And it might be time to think about the possibility that the greatest of all time, men's and women's player, won this weekend. I would probably say it's pretty safe to say Serena Williams is the best has that clinched yeah. and that Federer or excuse me Nadal is only four majors away from Federer's record and he has a chance to maybe break that and beyond and if he does it's hard to say he's not the greatest especially considering Nadal has pretty much dominated Federer yeah my last th- or my third thing this week is real quick since we've been so long on football uh Dennis Rodman if you've read any of this stuff with him he's kind of buddies with Kim Jong-il who most or I'm sorry Kim Jong-il is not with us. Yeah. His son, <laughs> Kim Jong-un. <laughs> and he's been back and forth to North Korea. He taught, Good for him. There's a wild thing on Fox. There's a wild article on Fox Sports about how Robin's going to go back to North Korea and bring some former NBA players to play some exhibition games. And then uh, Kim Jong-un wants him to train the North Korean basketball team for the 2016 Olympics. And Rodman almost comes across as an... Angelina Jolie, like ambassador for the U.S., talks about how Kim Jong-un wants to be a good person and wants to have a good relationship with the United States. Wild article from two weird dudes. Uh, Check it out. It's on FoxSports.com. Dennis Rodman returning to North Korea. Oh, and Italy qualified for the World Cup today. First time ever that they qualify with two qualifying games to go. Nice. All right. We'll be right back with Kenny Albert. Our next guest is from New York City and is a graduate of New York University. Since 1994, he has called NFL games for the Fox Sports Network. And yesterday, he opened his season with the Moose and the Goose in New Orleans yesterday, calling the Saints and the Falcons. A warm sportscaster is welcome to Kenny Albert. How are you doing today, Kenny? I'm good, Steve. How are you? Really good, really good. Enjoyed the game yesterday. You guys had a good one in a couple of senses. One... You could make an argument that it was one of the most important opening day games of the season. And uh, two, you guys had a game that even before going into it, you knew generally speaking, these two teams, when they play, it comes down to the last possession or two. And yesterday was no difference. 
Uh, before we get really, really into the game, uh, tell me a little bit about preparing for this season. Uh, you guys did work a preseason game, I know, together, and I think you did a few for the Redskins as well. Tell me about getting ready for an NFL season and kind of what you do to get ready for the season the month or so before. Well, you're right. We did a preseason game in New England together, uh, New England and Tampa Bay, week two of the preseason. And I did a couple of games, like you said, for the Redskins with Joe Theismann. And, you know, I always enjoy doing the preseason because it gets you back into the rhythm as opposed to just stepping in there for game one of the regular season and you haven't done a football game in seven or eight months. Um, as far as the preparation for week one, you, you probably uh, do even more for week one than you normally do um, because you get the assignment about two months in advance, and we were thrilled when we received the Atlanta New Orleans assignment because, like you said, Steve, they always seem to play close games that go right down to the wire no matter what the team's records are. You know, tremendous rivalry in the NFC South, and, um, you know, you start focusing on, on this game, you know, a couple of weeks in advance. Um during the preseason, similar to what coaches do. You know, the, the schedule comes out in April, and, and I think they put so much focus on week one. And then all of a sudden, that first game ends, and here you are, you know, six, seven days later, you have another game. So in our case, we actually get the Falcons again, which is good. Uh, always enjoy seeing a team two weeks in a row. It certainly helps with the preparation. But, um, you know, I, I watched most of the preseason games that both teams played, the Falcons and Saints, and, you know, read articles every day for about three weeks leading up to the game. And then once the game week arrives, you start preparing charts and notes. And uh, we went in on Friday to the Saints practice, had a great day there. They actually practiced at the Superdome, which was unusual, uh, but they wanted the players to get a feel you know, for the uh, dome. And then we went back to their facility and sat with Sean Payton for about an hour. And, and he was tremendous, uh, you know, just talking about what he went through last year and the preparations for this season and, on April 15th, when he sat down with the team for the first time, they all wore name tags, tape on their helmets, including Drew Brees, because Sean did not know about half the players in the room, the entire rookie class from 2012 and uh, the rookies and free agents that were brought in this year. So he didn't know half the guys. So we had a great chat with Sean, uh, met with Drew Brees, Rob Ryan, Roman Harper, who had the big interception at the end of the game. Uh, then Saturday, we met with the Falcons when they arrived at their hotel in New Orleans and uh, talked to Mike Smith and Matt Ryan and a couple of other guys, OCU Manura, Mike Nolan, the defensive coordinator. So, um, you know, by the time Saturday night comes, when we have our production meeting amongst ourselves, you have a real good grasp of both teams and, um, you know, then do the game on Sunday. But couldn't have asked for a better opener. It was back and forth. Falcons had a 10-point lead. Then the Saints went ahead, and Atlanta had a chance at the end to win the game. And Harper came up with the big interception, but it was a lot of fun. Great atmosphere in the Dome and a uh, good start. You know, we fell for our crew in week one. You know, you could probably have an interest, interesting perspective here in the sense that you guys opened the season in New Orleans last year as well for Saints and Redskins. Tell me a little bit about how you think things might have been different this year with Coach Payton back as opposed to how things were last year and the way you interacted with the players. What are some things that you noticed about how things might be different for the Saints this year with Coach Payton being back as opposed to last year when it was their first game without him since 2006? Right, you're absolutely right, Steve. And we, we referenced that a lot this weekend, even on the telecast yesterday. And in talking to Sean Payton and Drew Brees, you know, we were there last year prior to their first game against Washington, and we spoke to Brees and Aaron Cromer, who was the interim head coach at the time, and Steve Spagnuolo, who was the defensive coordinator, and we felt that they were in a good spot, that they had a coach on the field in, in Breeze and that everything was in place to have a good season. And 
you know, they had the big Sean Payton, you know, photo up in the practice facility, do your job, which Tom Benson, the owner, had put up. Right. And, you know, they come out in the first game, and, and in talking to some of the Saints people this weekend, they, they were a little surprised by, by what RG3 did in that first game because they didn't see much of it during the preseason. And when you prepare for that first game, there's not a lot of tape on guys, especially rookies. And um, I think he caught them by surprise. He threw the 88-yard touchdown pass to Pierre Garçon in the first quarter, and uh, they put up 40 points on the Saints. And it was Spagnuolo's first game, and the players were still getting used to his system. And when he took over as Giants defensive coordinator in 07, they allowed 80 points over the first two games that year to Dallas and Green Bay. So he knew it would take time. Saints were kind of stunned last year in that opener, and uh, they went on to lose their first four games and finish seven and nine. And then in talking, you know, to guys about it this weekend, um, you know, Drew Brees felt the same way. He thought they were ready, but obviously it was a different scenario without Sean Payton. And uh, you know, they finished under five hundred, but a lot of confidence in that building. You know, they're they're ready to go. They have their leader back. They have a new mentality on the defensive side with Rob Ryan. So I think they'll have a real good year. I think it'll come down to the Saints and the Falcons in this division once again. You know, sort of an interesting thing that's come out of the game, and I didn't think a ton about it yesterday, a little bit, but it's 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 been brought up a bit today on Twitter and other places, is Sean Payton's decision to kick the field goal to go up six. And I think it was uh, Moose who kind of right away said, no, I would not do this. There's no decision. I, I would kick this for sure. You know, trust my defense. But, you know, today, as I think about it more, and as some people have pointed out, I don't know that there's that big of an advantage to being up six I think a lot more can go wrong up six than only being up three if you win if you get a touchdown there you probably win the game if you get the first down it's almost maybe even better than the touchdown considering how much more clock you can run off uh what do you think about that and then tell me a little bit about more than what you think about the decision about your position there and kind of broadcasting the decision in the sense where do you want to get into your opinion much, or is that a spot where you kind of want to just kind of give it to your two guys and let them kind of handle that? Tell me a little bit about the dynamic and how a situation like that at the end of the game works for the three of you, and then tell me your opinion on the decision itself, which has gotten second-guessed a little bit today, despite the fact that they won the game anyway. Well, first of all, I thought Moose made a great point in the first quarter uh, when Sean Payton decided to go for it on fourth and inches, and, and they wound up getting stopped by the Falcons' defense. But Moose came right out before the play and said, this is an example of, of Sean Payton. He's the leader. He's the decision-maker. Uh, not sure last year in a similar spot, you know, whether either Aaron Cromer or Joe Vitt would have, would have made the same call. And you know, I thought it was great that Moose brought that up at the time before the play. And you know, even though it didn't work, the, the point that we continued to make, you know, both Moose and Goose and, and myself as well, uh, was that, that decision gave his defense confidence. You know, he's saying to his defense, okay, even if we get stopped here on offense, we have confidence in you to stop the Falcons with a short field. So I thought Moose made a great point there. With regard to the situation you were talking about, um, I certainly get involved, um, you know, bringing up game management type situations in that regard. And, you know, I did lay it out, I think, two plays prior. Um, you know, if they don't make it on, on third down, do you kick the field goal and, and make it a six-point game? Or do you go for it on fourth down, try for the touchdown, um, and go ahead by you know more than seven? And or you know the third scenario, which we initially saw when they tried to draw the penalty, is do you do you go for it? And even if you don't score, you know then it's only a three point game. So um, I certainly get involved, and then I let you know both Moose and Goose give their opinions as ex players, and um, it's one of those scenarios where you know obviously in the long run it worked because the Saints won the game, uh, but if 
you know, you kick the field goal, which they did, and then if the, if Atlanta does come down and score a touchdown and win by one, then Sean Payton would get second guess. So, right. um, you know, it's one of those decisions. I think the other point I made um, earlier when they went for it on fourth down, I said, don't forget, this is the coach that uh, went for the onside kick to start the second half in Super Bowl 44. So he's not afraid to make decisions, but I feel, you know, part of my job is to lay out the different scenarios and what could happen as well as bring up historical references, like I just mentioned with uh, Peyton starting the second half of the Super Bowl with the onside kick. I thought Moose made a good point, too, a little bit into the Falcons' drive about how maybe it would have been a better idea to let that clock just run out and save that timeout as opposed to using it uh, like they did. In right, that, the, yeah, that's yeah. another part of it because the Saints used the timeout you know, before the field goal. You could have just let the clock, the play clock run down and take the five yards. It's still a chip shot. Um, and then, you know, you wind up with one less timeout. And, and then the other factor is the Falcons able to use the clock, even though they didn't score. Had they scored the touchdown, you know, would they have run enough time off the clock as far as giving the Saints the ball back? So much so much moving there. I couldn't imagine trying to make these. It's so easy, you know, to make these calls, like, on the couch. You know, and then it's like, and then you guys are trying to make these calls in the booth, and then those guys are trying to make those calls on the sideline. It's like, oh, geez. No, absolutely. I mean, I do the same thing. I'll yeah. be sitting at home and watching a game, and you think of certain scenarios, but when you're in the booth and under fire, under pressure, you know, I'm not saying that our job is as hard or, um, you know, as, as what the coaches have, or you know, and there's certainly a lot more riding on the coaches' decisions, but, um, you know, it's during those times where, um, you know, sometimes after a game you feel, okay, I, I said the right thing there, we were right on, or once in a while you'll second-guess yourself and say, I wish I said this or didn't say that, so... Uh, that that's part of the fun of uh, live TV and 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 live broadcasting and um, you know there there are different scenarios every week you know you see things you've never seen before this is year twenty uh, for me with the NFL on Fox and I assure you that you know rules scenarios and and game management scenarios will come about this year that I haven't seen over the last nineteen years. Do you look at Twitter at all during the game? Not as much during the game. I do during the week because I feel it's a great news-gathering source. Um, I'll look at halftime um, once in a while during commercials, but we have so much going on, and we have other people monitoring it on occasion as well. But there's so much going on. I mean, the, the TV timeouts might seem like, a turn, like an eternity for fans, you know, either at the stadium or watching the game on TV. Uh, but for us, you know, we're looking at replays. We're discussing with with the producer and director what we want to do next. You know, I'm talking to the statistician, and you know, some of the other folks with us up in the booth, the support personnel. It goes by so quickly that there's not enough time. You know, I'm looking through the binoculars at personnel changes and who's in the huddle. So there's really not a lot of time. Um, I, I do check it out at halftime, like I said, because um, you know, once in a while somebody might bring something up that. Uh, you know, you, you either didn't think about or, or you might have uh, uh, not realized, but, um, you know, you, you can't become addicted to it because it'll take away from the other parts of your job. But I do, think, I do think there is a value to it as well. You know, one really interesting thing kind of about Fox and their football teams right now, and I'm curious to get your opinion on this, uh, is you have Buck and Aikman's team kind of, you know, entrenched in their position. But then after that, it seems like the next three teams, it almost seems like there's a little bit of a, I don't know if I want to say competition, but in the sense, it's almost like that number two team is up for grabs in a way. It seems like they gave you guys first crack at it with this, I would definitely say this, this the second biggest game on the schedule this week. 
Uh, but it seemed like last season you guys didn't get the playoff game. And, you know, this year uh, Kevin Burkhardt was brought in and Aaron Andrews was matched with his crew. And it almost seems like there's maybe a little bit of positioning available with those three teams. Do, do you guys feel challenged in that sense? Well, you know, those decisions are obviously made out in L.A. And, and you know, my feeling is we just go out and, and do the best job possible. Um, I feel very confident about our crew. Uh, we've done five divisional playoff games now in, in the last six years. Um, as you mentioned, we were not involved in the postseason last year, but, um, you know, had an unbelievable San Francisco-New Orleans game two years ago. One which, of the best which, ever, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, it goes up in yeah. my mind as, as one of the best games I've ever called. So, um, you know, we have great people working with us, and, um, you know, I'm friendly with a lot of the other folks at Fox that work on the different crews, and, and we're a team, and I hope they all do very well because, uh, um, you know, like I said, we are a team, and, and you see everybody at our meetings and seminars uh, during the off season, and get to know these people personally. But, um, like I said, very, very confident in our crew and, and the job we do. And I feel like I have uh, two great partners in, in Moose and Goose, and we've been together for seven years now. And, uh, like I said, you know, five divisional playoff games in six years. So I think our record speaks for itself. You know, it's really, we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's really a unique position where it's not a three man booth per se, because you only have two men in the booth. But it's not a traditional two-man booth with a sideline reporter because you have uh, Goose's mic pretty much open the entire game in a sense, right? So how do you think that that's working and evolving? And how do you feel about that situation this year as opposed to maybe last year or the year before that? Do you think it get, improves every year? Do you get more comfortable with it? How do you feel about the unique situation that you guys have in the overall landscape of NFL broadcasting? No, you're right, Steve. It is a unique situation because his mic is open and controlled by Goose, and he can come in, you know, pretty much, you know, whenever he has something to say, as opposed to some other sideline reporters who might only come in, you know, at specific times uh, when they have either an injury report or uh, uh, something else, you know, uh, about a player or a coach that they want to get in. But, you know, Moose likes to refer to himself as a sideline analyst, not a sideline reporter. And, uh, you know, it, it did take time to evolve. Uh, like I said, it's my seventh year with Moose and Goose. They were together for three years uh, prior to that with Nick Stockton, so they've been together for ten years. And I think it's remarkable. Um, I, I give Moose a lot of credit um, in that, you know, it is, it is a bit challenging uh, because in most booths it's, it's the play-by-play announcer and the analyst, and um, there's not a third voice who, who would like to get in. And, um, you know, Moose definitely has a great feel and, and goose for each other. Um, you know, I definitely find myself pulling back um, in, in, in this three-man situation as opposed to prior. And, and I worked with many other analysts, starting with Ron Pitts and Anthony Munoz and then Tim Green for seven years and Brian Baldinger for four years. But when I started with these guys, I definitely say less after a play. You know, you still have to give the basic information, you know, the yardage and uh, the down and distance coming up and, and, you know, the occasional nugget or, or statistical piece of information. But, um, you know, I'm certainly cognizant that I have two other guys that, that might want to get in. And, you know, Goose probably only comes in every six or seven plays. Uh, but Moose, you know, will, will, you know, once I'm finished after the play, he'll come in with his thought. But then he'll pause. And, and he has a sense for whether or not Goose is going to come in. And if he doesn't, then Moose might continue. And if, if Goose does come in, um, he also has a great sense of when to wrap it up prior to the next play. So I could say first and ten or second and seven or give information about the personnel on the field. So um, definitely challenging. I, I think the position has evolved. I think 
Goose does a great job of bringing the perspective of, of somebody who is down in the field as an analyst. Um, and, you know, like you said, you don't see it on any other crew. I know they've tried it in college football, but um, for the most part, 99% of the time the analyst is up in the booth. So I, I think it works well. I think Goose also has a great relationship with, with players and coaches, and he'll get information from them before the game as well that he'll incorporate into the broadcast. So uh, we enjoy it. You know, they're both great guys, Super Bowl champions who – um, bring a great deal of credibility to the table, and uh, it is unique. You know, I'm sure in 20, 25 years we'll look back, and um, you know, we, we had some great years, and, and hopefully we'll continue on. And uh, it's a lot of fun working with those guys, but definitely is a challenge. Sports guys are here with Kenny Albert from Fox Sports. Uh, called the Saints and the Falcons Week One yesterday. A couple more things, we'll let you go. Uh, looking at the NFC this year, which is your focus at Fox, and most of your games, or all of your games, will involve at least one NFC team. Uh, you got to see the Saints and the Falcons already here. What other kind of teams and storylines are you interested in having a chance to get a crack at here as the season evolves? Well, I think, Steve, the NFC East is really intriguing. Um, you know, we saw the Giants-Cowboys game, obviously, on Sunday night, and uh, the Cowboys finally beat the Giants at, at their new stadium for the first time in five years, and Giants have trouble maintaining the foot, you know, control of the football. But, you know, I think with the Redskins and RG3 and his health, you know, I know he says, says he's 100%, and I saw the Redskins twice in the preseason. I'm really impressed with their depth, I think, all around, you know, at, at on both sides of the ball. They're, they're really deep this year. Um, and then the Eagles are the wild card with, with head coach Chip Kelly. How will his system uh, work and integrate in, into the NFL now? So I think that's a really interesting division, and We'll get to see the Cowboys twice coming up, weeks three and four against St. Louis and San Diego. So uh, really looking forward to those games. We have a Giants-Eagles game in October in Philadelphia. Um, you know, watching part of the Green Bay-San Francisco game, I think those two teams will be uh, among the elite in the NFC. And, and we have Green Bay twice. We have Green Bay against uh, Detroit and Green Bay against Baltimore, weeks five and six, which should be great games. And then, uh, you know, you have Seattle, obviously. Um, I'm preparing for St. Louis this week, St. Louis against Atlanta. And the Rams, you know, with a big come-from-behind victory. And in that division, though, it's going to be tough, you know, to finish above 500 playing the 49ers and the Seahawks twice. But uh, they played the 49ers as well as anybody did last year. So I, I think, you know, they're going to give those teams a tough ride in the divisional games. But, you know, I would have to say San Francisco, Green Bay, Seattle, Atlanta, New Orleans. I mean, you could throw them all into the pot. I think there are a lot of good teams right now in the NFC South, I feel, will definitely come down to New Orleans and Atlanta, although Carolina and Tampa Bay have both improved. There's going to be one team, though, that, that we're not talking about now that, that that has a great year, and you know maybe it was Minnesota last year. I don't think many people thought they would make the playoffs. So I know I'm going with a lot of the chalk teams as we speak here, Steve, but uh, there'll, there'll be one team that we don't expect who comes out of nowhere in the NFC, I'm sure. You know, an interesting that, thing that's come up locally here in Buffalo is the the bills have, have, are investing some money in, in renovating the stadium a little bit, and one thing that people are anticipating is that the press box is probably going to be moved. And it, I guess it has a reputation. You'd know this being better than I would as being one of the better vantage points, uh, press box wise, around the league. Tell us a little bit from your from you working in these stadiums. What are maybe some of the better places in terms of vantage points to call a game? What are some of the worst, and why the position of the of the uh, of the booth causes challenges for you guys if it does or doesn't? Well, Buffalo is one of the better ones. You know, you walk in at street level and you're basically in the press box and then the stadium obviously, you know, goes down into the ground. Um, you know, fortunately for us doing national TV, 
we usually get a, a pretty good spot, even if the press box is elsewhere. In New Orleans, for example, yesterday, the, the writers and the radio broadcasters are all the way up at the top of the stadium above the 600 level, but we still have a spot um, about halfway up, I would say, but right on the 50-yard line. So, you know, that's part of the deals with the networks. The, the network booths are in a good spot for the most part. Now, some of them are more challenging. Some are higher, farther back. Uh, the, the worst to me, and I always enjoyed going to Phoenix, you know, for obvious reasons, but when the Cardinals played at Sun Devil Stadium, that was way up there, and, and the hmm. players looked like ants running around on the field, and the, the sun was coming in, you know, right at kickoff. Um, it, it's a much better scenario out in Glendale now, but uh, there, there are a couple that are uh, really low and, and close to the field, and, and for me, those are the best because it gives you a great perspective and you don't really miss much. Uh, Baltimore, Washington, and Chicago, I think, are the three uh, as far as the broadcast booth you know, that I would put at the top of the list. But there, there are a number of other good ones, uh, the Meadowlands, Tampa Bay, Carolina. Uh, the one we were in yesterday in New Orleans is really good. Atlanta's good. But, you know, whenever people ask me what game I have that week or what are the, some of the stadiums that I enjoy or the cities that I enjoy visiting during football, where the booth is located is at the top of my list because, right. you know, that's where I'm working for three hours and you have to be able to see the game and, and have a good vantage point. So that that's huge for me. Um, you know, like I said, Phoenix, the old Sun Devil Stadium was one of the ones that was, was towards the bottom of the list. Um, there, there are some others, but I think for the most part, um, they're pretty good. You know, in the preseason, when there are two telecasts and you're the visiting team, sometimes you get stuck in the corner, in the end zone. A lot of the radio broadcasts uh, also are, are really high up or in the corner, and, and I feel for them because it makes it harder to do your job. Last thing we'll let you go. I just want to sneak one quick hockey question in because last time we had John, it was kind of mid-playoffs and the Rangers run there. I think it was after two games of the Bruins series. And one thing I asked you is whether you thought the Rangers would make a coaching change. You really didn't think they would. Ultimately, they did. What do you kind of anticipate moving into the next, uh, into the regular season? We're about, I think, 20 days away or something like that uh, to get going here in hockey. What kind of things do you think will be different with the new coaching regime in, in, in New York? Well, for one, I was a little surprised when they made the change, coming off five playoff rounds in two years. But I certainly, uh, you know, saw the reasons why they made the change. And in bringing in Elaine Vigneault, I think it'll be more of an up-tempo style, which uh, to me, when you have a goaltender the caliber of Henrik Lundqvist, uh, why not? You know, why not go for it on offense a little more? Um, he's a guy who's had success. He's won, I think, six division titles in Vancouver and got to the Stanley Cup Finals in 2011. So uh, training camp opens Wednesday. I'll be going to a Ranger event tomorrow night as well. So looking forward to spending some time around the new coaching staff. But uh, very optimistic feeling about the team. You know, like I said, they've, they've gone five playoff rounds the last two years, conference finals in 2012 and the second round last year. And they do have some injuries. Ryan Callahan and Carl Haglin might not be ready to go at the start of the regular season, but uh, they're deep. They have some good young kids up front. Tremendous defensive core. Sounds like Mark Stahl will be back, you know, close to 100% after the eye injury he suffered uh, last March. But, like I said, when you have a healthy Henrik Lundqvist in goal, I think uh, uh, you can go pretty far in the Stanley Cup playoffs. You know, a lot of that depends on the matchups and the health of your team at the time and, uh, you know, who you play. But, you know, Lundqvist is still relatively young, 31 now, and getting ready for his ninth year in the league. He's the backbone of the team, so I think we'll have a real good season. Are you covering any Olympic hockey this year? I will be, yes. Yeah. Um, I've been very fortunate to uh, be involved in the last three for NBC. 
in uh, Salt Lake City, Torino, and Vancouver. So um, I'll be there with the with the guys in Sochi this year. So really looking forward to that as well. Yeah, that's sweet. All right, so Kenny Albert is uh, calling football games again this year for Fox Sports with Daryl Johnson and Tony Saragusa. You can find Kenny on Twitter at Kenny Albert. Always very generous of of his time with us. We thank you very much for that. Oh, one last thing. Hey, you know, uh, you've probably heard about this anyway because it's kind of sweeping the nation and its popularity. But you know our podcast, obviously. And do you know Ken Fang and the Fang Bikes website? It's kind of a I do. Yeah, we have created a uh, Fox Football announced team fantasy game. You know, I have heard about that. You heard about I, it. I did see that last week. I was week. kind of kidding. <laughs> but uh, any tips for our many players of the game on how to, uh, how to achieve success? Obviously, I'm going to tell everyone to listen to this because I think you dropped some clues that will help our Yeah, our I was players. just about to say, yeah. I think I mentioned four or five, five of our next seven games. <laughs> so, um, you know, to those who are playing the game, I hope I haven't given too much away. But I'm pretty sure I mentioned... Five of the, actually six of the next seven. Oh during my! The yeah, of, so listening to this during the course like of our conversation. Yeah, so that that one week I didn't mention that'll be challenging for everybody. <laughs> thanks a lot. Really appreciate the time, Kenny. Okay, thanks, Steve. Keep up the good work. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, T.J. Pushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. (laughs) I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. Thanks to Kenny Albert. Always one of the kinder fellas to appear on the show. Really appreciate the time from him. Five on fantasy this week. Really got to be careful with fantasy after one week to not overreact in any one direction. Yeah, we'll get to that. And we're going to get to that in a minute. What we're going to do today is we're going to do our starts and sits. And don't go back don't, and listen to yeah. my starts. Whew. And Boy. Uh, and I kind of copped out on sits last week anyway because I just said start the people you drafted first, basically. Yeah, and hopefully you did and not the guys that I told you to. Because Sit your backups wow. is what I said. Uh, and um, we're going to do some pickups because there are some guys that are interesting to consider this week. And then we'll uh, do. We'll take a bunch of guys we kind of looked at in week one and say if we're kind of buying or selling. We don't want to steal that from anyone else, but basically it's hard to not we, steal things from fantasy football. It's hard to do things that somebody isn't already doing. We're just so let's we'll give our take. Look on at it. some guys and tell you what we think about their long-term viability as fantasy players. All right, let's. You want to go back and forth, start and sit. Start. Sure. My quarterback sit this week is Russell Wilson. Uh, again, don't go nuts and sit him. For no good reason, but if you have if you drafted Russell Wilson and you have Michael Vick, there's a lot of people that are going to think twice if they drafted Michael Vick as a backup about starting him this week, and I I couldn't blame them. They look really good, and you might as well get the starts for him while he is starting. But yeah, I if you've got a better option, I wouldn't mind sitting Russell Wilson. What if you had Russell Wilson and Sam Bradford? Who do they play? Uh, St. Louis plays on the road at Atlanta, who's down to quarter cornerback four and five. I probably boy, boy that goes against start your studs. But I I'd have to think long and hard about that because Bradford's going to be down in that game, uh, or at least they're going to have to keep up. And the Seattle San Francisco game is going to be a really really interesting game. It's it's the most interesting game of the week. So I don't I don't know I don't know how long these two teams feel each other out uh, I don't know I'd love to say Russell Wilson has a big day because I've got him on my fantasy team and I will be starting him but that's close and that's probably the only time I'll say that all year 
Uh, you kind of mentioned it. My start this week at quarterback is Vic for a couple reasons. One, it's the home opener, and they're going to want to put on a show as best they can. Uh, they got the Chargers in on a short week, traveling from west to east, which I always hate. And like you said, my long-term prediction for this is maybe hesitant to believe it can last, but I'm not worried about next week. I think they'll be great. Right. It's hesitant to believe it can last because of health, though, not because of the right. offense. I think they'll be great this week. I think start your Eagles. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Deshaun Jackson. I'm, yeah. Start your I mean, you're always starting McCoy anyway. But. Right. Uh, my running back sit this week is Chris Johnson, and this might be a cop-out because he might end up in this spot a lot, and he has – He's kind of always been a guy picked on on this podcast, but he just might not be that good. In a game that was close all week, he and I know it's against Pittsburgh, who has a decent defense, but he did nothing again. And you want you want him to be a guy. You're okay with if him doing nothing on nine carries if he breaks the tenth for sixty yards, but he just hasn't done that in a in a while. It seems like uh, so. I'd be hesitant to start Chris Johnson, but obviously. If, if you got nobody, running backs are thin this year, so you're probably starting him, but I wouldn't expect much. I'm so tempted, and if the matchup was a little bit better, I would say David Wilson here, and I'm still k- yeah. kind of saying that anyway. I think you should still start him this week. Coughlin's just so crotchety. I know, but unless they outright say he's not starting. Right, because they did just pick up Brandon Jacobs. Right, and unless they say we're going with someone else he's not starting, I think you got to play him another week. I don't know. I think he's just—he's a guy he's on my I think player list to talk about whether we should overreact or not. Yeah, uh, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But if I'm not going to say him, I'm going to say Ridley. And yeah. again, that's kind of a cop out, but it's another similar situation where he fumbled, he got taken out. He probably lost the job, and then Vereen, but Vereen got hurt. I would not. I'd be saying sit him if Vereen doesn't get hurt. Right. But now it's another case of you have to. Who else are you going to start? Yep. They're not going to start Blunt. No. No, he looked bad even against the so Bills. I, I th- it's a combination of – I guess what I'm saying is don't give up on Ridley or Wilson yet because you drafted him too high to do that. My wide receiver sit this week, and this one might be a legitimate sit depending on your bench, is Roddy White. Uh, he kind of admitted that he was a bit of a decoy against yep. the Saints. And I don't know if there's any talk about not playing him. There but might be. He has a, what he's des- or what they've described as a high ankle sprain, which is terrible for receivers, and it won't get better without rest. And I don't know what they were doing and putting out there against the Saints. I don't know how much of a decoy. I don't. Who's the Saints' best corner? Was he on Roddy White all night or Keenan, Julio? Uh, Keenan Lewis is their best corner, and he was on Will, Julio, uh, Julio, Julio until he got hurt. Yeah. So, I Roddy White's a legitimate sit until he looks healthy to me. I'd be worried if I drafted Roddy White in the third round or something in your draft. Yeah. Yeah. Because those those ankles, the, the yeah. only way they get better is usually by not playing. Right. They have a later bye, too. He's not going to get that extra week. I don't know when their Thursday game is, if he can see, sneak in a little bit of extra rest uh, in between there. But, geez, I don't know. Uh, as far as wide receivers, uh, I'm going to go with – a guy who probably really disappointed you last week. Well, how about I'll put it like this. Start all your Packers wide receivers. The Redskins secondary got gashed at times. Their best corner is probably D'Angelo Hall, who got absolutely smoked by uh, Deshaun Jackson on that one touchdown. And after Cobb, who obviously you're starting, 
Nelson and Jones were kind of drafted, maybe your second, maybe your third, maybe right. even your fourth. Jones, had a, Jones is a little disappointing. Jones, I don't think, caught a ball. Yeah, I don't think he did either. So, But I, I'm going to get both of those guys in for sure if they're on my team. All right, pickups real quick this week. Uh, if Jordan Cameron's available in your league, he looks for real. Yeah, uh, I told one of the fantasy novices in our league to draft him. Yeah. And he didn't even know who he was. And Yeah, I mean, a lot of people be thinking I'm a hero. He looks like Gronkowski out there. Just a big, huge target. Uh, Julius Thomas is another tight end. Plays for Denver. Might already be a little forgotten about because they played Thursday, but he had two TDs and uh, looked good. He's going to be raw, so you'd assume he'd only get better, too, because he's a converted basketball player. Huge target. Um, I think if I'm a David Wilson owner, I don't know who you pick up. Maybe you pick up both Brandon Jacobs and Darrell Scott, but I'd be a little worried. And if you have someone on your bench, maybe you threw a flyer on earlier in the year, or if maybe some one of your players got hurt and you have an IR slot and you just have an empty slot, I think you might have to pick up one of them. I'm not, I don't know who, though. I, I don't know how talented I think Brandon Jacobs is. And Darrell Scott looked okay, but he ended up causing an interception that basically put that game out of reach. So they got to go back to Wilson. Yeah, they you just have you, to. Their season's you would done. Sure think so. I mean, with when they had Ahmad Bradshaw, they could they could not go back to Wilson and be okay. They're not going to win if they don't go back to him. And the coach did kind of say we need him to be better or something like that. So it, he didn't say like he's off the team or anything. And obviously, the other guy is uh, Michael Vick. Oh, okay, Vick if he's available. Yeah, Vick is still available if you, if you're in a ten team league and everybody only took one and maybe he was on the outside. I think you have to pick him up. He's probably. A top five guy, as long as he's healthy. Certainly a top ten guy. Oh, for sure. So he's definitely should be started in ten team leagues. Uh, Julian Edelman's one. Yep. Probably yep. didn't go drafted, who looked pretty good in the and Patriots. There's game. word out of Boston that uh, Amendola might not play already this week. That's a shock. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Guy's a battler, though. I, I drafted him in my league. I saw him walk off the field, and I'm like, Oh, all right, I got half a game out of him this right. year. Fantastic. And then he came back, and he, he played phenomenally. Make that glorious catch on third down. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, and, yeah, then I think I think this is more of a case of the short week probably gets him. You know what? One thing I'll say is if I if I got a budget, if I'm doing blind bidding, yeah. I don't know how much money I'm spending this week. I want to wait and see a little bit more. I, and we're let's you know let's just get it. Let's do the – If Jordan uh, Cameron's out there, I'm spending a lot of money on him. I, I think he's, I think he's a, a stud. Let's Other say it's a that, fifty dollar cap. What are you going to bid for Cameron? Like I have fifty dollars for the whole season. Yeah. All right. Let's say a hundred. Is that probably more likely? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if I have a hundred, maybe close to twenty to twenty dollars, yeah. and that's a yeah. lot. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one fifth. That, another thing is knowing your your league mates. So if you think somebody, if you think you can get away with eleven dollars or something like that, then throw eleven dollars out there. But then you might not get them. So depends how bad you need them, I guess. Yeah. All right, let's do these overreactions. All right, I got guys. Should we overreact, or, or is the panic? Should we do a reason to panic? David Wilson. We've talked a lot about I him. I say don't panic. You got to give it at least another week. He's too talented. Yeah, I, I'm less worried about him and more worried about the coach there, which is why I had. You might want to back him up with Darrell Scott, but I'm not. I'm not trying to trade him or anything. Cause that'd be all. He's he's a really good buy low candidate. If yeah. You get someone that's panicking. Go get him. RG three. I'm worried. Yeah, I am a little bit. I'm too. worried because it just didn't look good, right? And his coach, coach mismanaged his injury last year, and it looks like he may have already again this Supposedly year. Supposedly they don't talk much. Yeah, Adrian Peterson. I know we had a monster game, but he is gonna. This is more about Christian Ponder just being awful. Uh, 
Listen, the Lions statistically tripled what you normally do to stop a guy. And he still got you three touchdowns and 90 yards. Yeah, and hopefully that's his lowest I think I think he's fine. I'm not worried. CJ Spiller, are you worried? Nope. Yeah, I'm not either. Uh, LaShawn McCoy, are we overreacting to saying he might be the best running back in fantasy this year? No. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good offense if he stays healthy. I had the second pick in two drafts, and I feel like I probably should have picked him both times. Yeah. Arian Foster. I'm worried a little. Yeah, I am a little bit I'm too. I'm not happy about back injuries. That scares me. And the one thing they talked about was easing him back in, and it doesn't seem like they really did. He had, I think, what do we say, 18 carries. That's not exactly easing a guy in. He just didn't do anything with them. And they didn't exactly play a world beater. I shouldn't say that. The Chargers' defense is better than their team as a whole, but you would think he would have done a little bit better than I'm that. worried if I drafted him in the second, first round. You know, like, I'm a little worried about yeah, that. Yeah, I'm especially... Like I said, watching McCoy last night, it was immediately like that's the second best running back in football. And like I said, I had the second pick in two drafts, and I didn't pick him Foster both times. And there hasn't been anything to see to make me think I would pick him if I had a redo. Foster? Yeah, no, I agree. Reggie Bush? No, I was high on him before, and I think that that offense is the absolute perfect offense for him. I mean, if he had that type of game, he'd be the number one running back in fantasy probably at the end of the year. He had like 200. Yeah, he might not be that good. And but he also said he had a groin injury and something else. And he dislocated else. a finger in yeah. the game, yeah. So durability could be an issue for him, but I'm excited about him if I have him, yeah, especially he, in a PPR. He's a must-start as long as he's healthy. Like He's kind of like Vic to me, I think. I think if he every game he plays, he's going to be probably top 10, maybe top 5, and just get him in while he's healthy. Doug Martin. A little worried. Yeah. Not not panic-worried, but a little worried. I just think worried. that team is bad. I I don't love Josh Freeman. I think this is his might be his last season. If uh, we were talking about Bradford having to show something, Freeman had that great rookie season. It was terrible for most of last year, and then started good, ended epically bad. Right, and then started not great. I mean, the Jets are a good D too. So I'm just a little worried, not panicked, just a little worried. Yeah, for sure, he's still a start every week. And uh, the last guy I got for overreacting, Lamar Miller. What is this guy going to oh, be? Oh, jeez. Yeah, see, he's I don't so know. He's so fast. He's so seemingly – he has what you'd want in like a – he almost looks a little bit like Doug Wilson or a C.J. Spiller. He's like that shifty, fast guy, and the guy playing in front of him, Daniel Thomas, looks so no average. Good, yeah. You know, he's not a rookie necessarily, but one thing I did say in 5 on Fantasy last week is to kind of hang back on the rookies a little bit and take a, and take a look, and that was mostly right. I right. mean, if you started Monty Ball, you're probably pretty bummed about it. You know, if you started Bernard, you're probably a little bummed about it. You got to give these guys a little bit of time. And maybe Miller, as a first-year starter, is another guy. If I have him on my team, if I drafted him, I want to stick with him still. Yeah. But I have no idea. He could go either way. I wouldn't put money on either one. I will say he's not on my list, but I want to mention real quick. Eddie Lacy didn't have a very good game. I watched almost all of that game. I liked the way he looked. I liked the way he runs. It wasn't because he danced. It's a great defense. Yeah, it's a nice. So... There was a stat that the Packers have gone something, some ungodly amount of games without a 100-yard rusher. I think Eddie Lacy gets that this year, it, once or twice. He he runs really hard, and they used him a lot, and they didn't give up on him, and there's nobody else there. I, I like, for as average or below average as the day Eddie Lacy had, I really was uh, optimistic about what I saw in him. I think if you drafted him late and he's your flex or 
third running back or something like that, I think he's going to have a solid year. What about the other two rookies? You start him this week? You start Bernard or, or uh, Ball this week? No, no, definitely not Ball. Right, Bernard. He's he's interesting because he had a nice per average. I think he averaged like five and a half yards a carry, but he only got like four carries. Green Ellis had 14 carries and got 25 yards. Green Ellis is just the definition of, uh, what do they say? Clouded four four yards, yards clouded, dust. clouded dust. He runs straight forward into the line, and that's it. And he, he didn't average two yards a carry last week. The one thing I'll say about Ball is if you have him on your team, keep him there because he yeah, don't was drop him. clearly the most talented back they had. And I think for him it's just a matter of being able to be out there and protect Peyton. Yeah, no shot. Sure you can learn that. If you are really strapped for running backs, Moreno is not a bad pickup this week either. They He'll get touches. They definitely trust him the most. I think he got the most catches of any running back uh, on Denver. I'm not comfortable really starting any Broncos running back though, so I'd stay away from it if you can. But if if you're if your Vereen was your number two running back for some reason, maybe you want wide receiver happy. Uh, I would pick up Noshawn Moreno and. He's worth a start. I mean, that's a great offense. So anytime you can get the number one guy in the good offense, you do it. All right, we'll be right back with Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is from San Diego, California, and is a graduate of Vanderbilt University. He is making his league-leading 16th appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to our main man, Lee Jenkins. What's up, Lee? Hey, Steve. How are you? Good. Doing really good. So you're trying to jinx the Pirates, huh? <laughs> yeah, I were for a little while, but it was good to, uh, good to see them get that 82nd win. It's amazing being there, just how much 82 wins means to them. I don't think it means a lot to the players, but to the fans, it sort of became this milestone. I think most of us, you know, when we think about baseball, you think about being in the pennant race, getting into the playoffs, having you know a chance to play deep into October. But for them, um, just being there, I was kind of surprised how much that 82nd win actually meant. It wasn't immediate creation. They, they really wanted it, and, and they got it. And that's kind of I think the first sort of box checked for them as they as they move through uh, as they move through and really try to become. You know, a story that in some ways would, would help save this baseball season. It's been, you know, such a negative summer with Braun, with Alex Rodriguez, um, some of the back and forth with Yusil Puig. So I think that this would be, uh, this would be something for baseball to kind of hang its hat on, but both Andrew McCutcheon and the Pirates. You know, it seemed like one really cool thing about the story, and just listening to you answer that first thing, is you really focused more in this story about the city and the, the the fans, and it really wasn't a typical story about the players. There's some player quotes in there specifically from um, Walker, who's from Pittsburgh, but it was more about the city itself and, and what the city means. And One of the great things about that city really is their stadiums. I mean, the three major sports venues they have might be three of the best in the country, and PNC Park, to me, is one of the greatest places in America. But every time I've been there, it's always been to see Bonds in his prime or to see Maddox or to see something besides the Pirates. And it's always pretty much half full. What is the place like buzzing like this? No, it's it's great. It's full. It's full for really the first time. I mean, when it opened that year, they had a really good attendance year. This year's second only to that. Um, you know, it's not sold out every night, but you know, I was there for a Cardinal series and it was sold out. Um, those games were sold out. And I think it's, a lot of it, what happens, Steve, and the reason it was 
I do kind of go the more the fan route, is that they really lost a generation. I mean, they lost for 20 straight years. They never played a meaningful game, um, really past July 4th or past August 1st. So you had a lot of people who just thought of themselves as, as football fans. And obviously the Steelers have been great in that period. The Pirates have been miserable. Penguins have been very good. Um, so the idea of this kind of lost generation was sort of interesting to me. And, and you're right, as a venue, it's probably second to none, but it's not necessarily thought of that way. You know, we talk about AT&T in San Francisco, and um, even Safeco gets a little more, I think, acclaim, and it's simply because it was just such a deadened atmosphere. It was this beautiful uh, cathedral that, that lay dormant, because on a lot of nights, especially in September, there would be 8,000 people there, and the weather was brutal, um, and the team was really bad, and it was just a bunch of, you know, quadruple-A type of players. Um, but they built something, and, and this is something baseball's had really every year for the past few. I mean, last year we saw it in Baltimore. A few years back, Detroit, uh, which was so bad for so long, kind of emerged. Um, so a lot of these dormant franchises are, are coming up, and, you know, Kansas City will probably be, you know, the next one. And this is part of Bud Selig's plan. It's part of baseball's plan to expand the playoff format to kind of get that taste of September baseball into more areas despite – uh, the salary or the you know the revenue disparities that baseball has and 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 the you know the payroll disparity. Your story starts out with uh, with a little bit of talk of Sid Bream and how his sort of slide into home in the '92 NLCS kind of ended what was a, a good era of baseball in Pittsburgh and began this lost era of baseball, the lost generation, as you put it in the piece. So Sid Bream is going to throw out the first pitch at whatever playoff game they host this year, right? Did you talk to him about that at all? Is that, like, in the works? Like, is he into that? Or? That would be great. I didn't. I should ask that. I could have consulted with you. I should ask that question. But, you know, it was cool being that, uh, you know, I got to go over to his house and spend a little time with him. And it's just it's just weird. I mean, you don't think of that many players who kind of started the downfall of the franchise and then living in that area. I mean, he could have been a hero in Atlanta Georgia, if he if he chosen to settle there, but look, he grew up in Central Pennsylvania. Not that many baseball players come from that area. He played for the Pirates. He probably had, I mean, he definitely had his best seasons there. So he decided to go back there. And I don't. You know, I was kind of looking at other, you know, guys like Bucky Dent, other guys who sort of are synonymous um, with kind of giving a, a, a whole franchise one of those real stomach punch games, dealing them one of those blows, and they, they almost never live in that area. It's just it's just kind of so random that, that Sid Bream does, but he thinks of himself as a Pirates fan, and I'm sure he'll be at those playoff games, and he'll be rooting for them. And I mean, really, it's, it's silly to kind of make him the face of that, of what happened, because he had nothing to do with them not re-signing bonds and all those free agents leaving and all the mistakes, and even that ending. I mean, Francisco Cabrera's hit was obviously a bigger deal. You know, Bream had walked earlier in that inning, um, but he's a guy who was on six knee surgeries right. um, and was able to score on Bonds' throw. And just sometimes in sports, a snapshot kind of says it all, uh, even if the context is kind of larger than the snapshot. And that was one of those cases. I mean, I think MLB Network ranked it in the top five and most exciting plays in baseball history. Uh, so Sid Bream really will always be known for that, um, even though even though he was. The last thing he'd ever, anyone ever thought he'd be known for was a play he made with his legs. Yeah, I still can't believe Bonds didn't throw him out. I mean, I almost think that that's yeah, a bigger I mean, mark on his career. Yeah, I mean, short left. Right. But it was two outs, so he was running with the pitch. And the thing, Green, he went over sort of that sequence, and he said he took 
a preposterously long lead off second. He said that if Belinda had turned, he would have been picked off by a mile. Uh, but he knew his only chance to score, because he was so slow, was to take this huge lead. So he did have a good lead. The throw was bad, um, and, and, and he got in there. But it was too hot. I mean, he was running with the pitch. Usually we all expect a two-out single man on second for him to score. To score. Right. So, yeah. you know, I think it's, it's rough, too, that Bonds has kind of had to carry that because, you know, a lot of times on a play like that, it's a 50-50 ball from the beginning. Um, but now the throw was bad and the luck was bad. Um, and one interesting thing that Breen said that I didn't get into in the story, he walked that inning on four pitches, and it was against Doug Drabeck, who's like one of his best friends. And he still believes that kind of his friendship with Drabeck sort of changed the course of how the way Drabeck approached the at-bat or something. That there was, He just thought it was so weird that he would walk on four pitches in that inning against one of his good friends. And, you know, a lot of guys will say that in baseball, that when they have a relationship with somebody and they're facing them, it sort of changes the dynamic of the at-bat. It's not that they're trying to walk them or anything, but sometimes it's harder to throw a strike, especially in a moment with such high stakes. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and what you're talking about with trying to find – I was thinking, like, in Buffalo, it would kind of be like uh, be like Brett Hall, the guy who scored the no goal in 99, like, being from Buffalo yeah. and then coming back and living here or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be weird. Yeah, it, yeah. Would be, it, would be, it would be really weird. It would be really weird. So, you know, like we talked about with the, with the kind of, like, I was joking about the jinx thing, but the Pirates, you know, after the All-Star game, you know, Grilly, he went on the DL after he was on the cover. And then this cover comes out, and they kind of struggled uh, to get that 82nd win. But the thing I was thinking about more than any SI jinx is that sometimes when you're a franchise that's been uh, been unable to achieve something, when you get so close to achieving it, it almost seems like there's a little bit of a block there. Like It's like, all right, we're so close to this 82nd game, so we got to lose three before we get it just because that's the way it's going to go. And it's like when they're going to get to that game to clinch it, you know, they're gonna, it's going to take them a bit or something like that, if you know what I mean. But Yeah, I think there's something to that. Like when you, when you really get really close to it, I think a lot of times the sports psychologists I've talked to have said this, you start to put yourself over the hump. It's like when you're playing something and you start to sort of see the headline before it's happened. You start to think, wow, how great would that be? If we won, we're so close to when you start to kind of go there mentally. And I think that's when a lot of athletes trip up, you know, I mean, and, and guys will tell you that. That's why they all say you stay in the moment, football coaches, six seconds at a time. It's cliche and you hate hearing it, but it's what they have to preach to their players so that they don't kind of go there mentally to a place where they've already succeeded before the success has occurred. I mean, a lot of coaches will, you know, will talk about that. I mean, you know, I've thought a lot about that whole, SI jinx thing, and there is a reason for it. A lot of times we will go where a team is really hot, okay, and then we'll write a story and put them on the cover and all those things. Um, but hot, you know, hot good runs are often followed by cold snaps, and hot streaks are followed by cold snaps. It's just the, the kind of yin and yang of sports. And with a team like the Pirates, they're very really good and they're building, but they're in no way an elite team. You know, they're not a juggernaut. I mean, this is still a team that has, you know, they're surviving off pitchers who they've taken off the scrap heap, and those guys are inconsistent. Sometimes they're good, and they look like geniuses, and sometimes they're not so good. And, you know, their lineup has some holes, and they've had some injuries. So it's not, you know, it's one of those situations where when you, you know, when you write about a team like that, they're going to be up and down because they're just not 
impenetrable. I mean, this isn't a team that I would say, oh, they're going to win the World Series, they're World Series favorites, or, or, or anything like that. I think that, you know, the idea is that they've brought relevant baseball to an area that hasn't seen it. And that, in and of itself, is a tremendous accomplishment. You know, anytime we talk about the Pirates uh, with a, a big baseball guy like a Jeff Passan or whoever, yeah. you know, we always get to this like, all right, so the interesting thing for them is like, what if they get to this, what if they have to play that wild card game? And there's right. the potential that that's the only playoff game they play. And this is more like a baseball question. I'm just curious to get your take. And it's like, if they had, if they could pitch whoever they wanted that day, who would they pitch? And everyone says that they think they should pitch. Burnett, but I think why wouldn't you pitch Garrett Cole? I mean, in a sense, like this season is already in bonus money in a way, and that's the guy that you're going to want to be on that hill in those games for the next generation. So why not get him that exposure? I don't know. Did you, you, you have any thought? Yeah, about I mean, that? they're different. They're t- yeah, I mean, there are just two ways to look at that, right? I mean, you, you can do it that way, but a lot of times baseball teams worry about a pitcher's confidence, you know, about kind of shaking him. This is where kind of baseball, it's what baseball is, right? You, you wait for the player to have success, and then you move them up or wrong, like when it comes to minor league baseball. They don't like any major league, anybody to get to the major leagues until they're really ready. They wouldn't want to put them on the mound in the playoffs until they're really ready. I get frustrated with baseball teams a lot, because they, they oftentimes have these young studs waiting there, and they don't like to use them early. They don't like to rush anybody. So, And the Pirates are really part of that, especially when it comes to their young pitching. So what I think they would do is go with Burnett because of the experience, because he's played in October, uh, wouldn't get rattled. Um, but as far as pure stuff, you, you're right. They, they couldn't do better than Cole. But I think what they would worry about is a, a horrible game like that. It shakes a guy's confidence. And that's a very sort of baseball way of looking at it. Um, you know, they're, they're often worried about young pitchers and their psychology, um, other, more so than just like the upside of the moment, which, which Cole obviously has. And then you've got Liriano in there too. And this is, what we're talking about is why the Pirates, and I'm sure Jeff would say this too, why the Pirates are vulnerable. I mean, the fact that they don't know, like right. we're talking about the Dodgers, we know who pitches that game. Right. And we so. know who right. pitches the next game. And we know that those guys are rock solid, locked down, starting pitchers, really two aces at the top. And more and more, when you look at the blueprint at the Giants, it's like that's what you need to get through that kind of a format. And it's why the Pirates remain vulnerable. They're the two guys they would probably go with, Burnett or Liriano, you know, were both taken off the scrap heap. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, both of them, you, in their last stop, you kind of figured their career was essentially over, too. It's like the scrap heap is like the perfect way to describe it. We're not even being like exaggerating in any way. Well, and, and whereas Cole is this, you know, proven guy, I mean, he, I mean as far as, you know, pedigree, right, first skill, pick. number yeah. one overall pick, you know, if you look at him, he's a bull. I, mean, I think he could, you know, totally handle that moment. Um, and look, that, I just think for a team like the Pirates, avoiding that one-game playoff is, is crucial. Because I still think with, with all of that emotional baggage, just what a kind of hot house that would be in a one-game situation. Yeah, I hate having playoff, having baseball seasons decided on one game. You know, I know it juices the ratings and it, it's great, but it kind of flies in the face of anybody who really understands baseball. It just flies in the face of what it's all about. I mean, you could have you know, a college team to beat a big league team in a one-game playoff. Anything can happen in baseball in one game. Um, to me, it's just, and this is the thing about the baseball playoffs now. It's almost becoming like the NCAA tournament. You can really, if you just get in, 
you can kind of bounce around and maybe win the World Series. We're not always going to see the best team win the World Series, whereas in the NBA, for instance, which I cover, generally speaking, you're going to get the best team every year. Yeah, I mean, the wild card we saw last year, it's one bad infield fly rule away from basically ending your season. Yeah, and it's, it's just hard to see that in baseball because you just know baseball is such a random sport. You know, anything can happen in a game, in a best of five. I mean, they're just... It's it's kind of a cruel it's kind of a cruel thing, and I think that in spectator sports, the cruelty of that sells. The cruelty of that is what juices the ratings and gets all of us to buy in and watch the game. But it's not necessarily rewarding of the team um, that truly deserves to advance. You talked a lot in the story about, like we said, about Pittsburgh and and how Pittsburgh is is responding to baseball this summer. Uh, you spent most of your time in LA. How had how have you felt the 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 culture and the mood about the team change from that start where we were talking every day about is Manningly going to get fired to this almost unprecedented like what fifty and seven run or whatever they're on here in the last several months. No, I mean it was, it started slowly like like all those things do, and then it sort of when Tweed came up, it there's just a real momentum in town. I mean you hear about it all the time. The, the stadium's full, and you know L.A. is a great. Southern California in general is just a great baseball area. There's incredible college baseball, high school baseball. It's in the blood. It's in the grassroots. And so when the Dodgers are going, uh, it's a special thing because it's, they're a little like the Lakers in that they, they cut across this, this kind of massive metropolis, falling metropolis. Um, and there's nothing like Dodger Stadium when it's, when it's teeming. They always have drawn good crowds. I and mean, that's kind of, even when McCourt was there in the darkest days, they were still kind of a top ten attendance team. Um, but now it's just, uh, you know, it's just a feeling. That, and look, they're on a cold snap, too. I mean, it happens to everybody. Um, but I think that they have, you know, whereas the Pirates are really building from within and they're kind of adopting this small market, uh, this small market blueprint like Tampa Bay, the, what you see with the Dodgers is almost like what the Yankees look like in the mid-90s. I mean, I'm not going to say it's the start of a dynasty or anything, but they're winning bids for Cuban players. They're over-slotting draft picks. They're kind of doing their spending big, obviously, on free agents. They're taking on salary. They're trying to win kind of everywhere. Um, so I think there is a, a feeling that, that this team is, is building something for the long term. And you know, we're talking about those one-game playoffs, these kind of crushing or uh, unforgiving playoff formats. They are built for that because they have, you know, when you have that ace and right. then you have a second one like Kershaw and Grinke, you're just really ready to roll in, in this format. You know, the kind of the thing I always hear about Dodgers team is how great it is and how everyone gets there late and leaves early. Does that kind of change a little bit as we get to this point of the season and, and the run that they've been on? Are, are fans more willing to wait in traffic for this team? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, that's always... Uh, you know, that's always kind of been a, a cliche. I mean, I, there, there's there's a ton of traffic getting in. There's a lot of traffic getting out. It's a it's a high traffic area. I mean, I you know, I always think that uh, they got Vince Scully on the ride home. I always think it's like a lot of places. The high, the big ticket seats, the really expensive seats where you're more likely to get your corporate folks. You know, your East Coast transplants, some of those types. You're going to have leaving early up top. You know, you, where you have kind of more blue-collar fans, um, you know, they have a heavily Latino fan base. Th- those folks don't usually leave early, um, and they usually don't get there late. So I always think that sometimes 
fan bases get characterized based on what people see on TV or what writers see when they're looking down at the lower bowl rather than up to the higher bowl where usually the, the true fans sit. It's the same deal with the Lakers. I mean, down in the lower bowl, you have all these kind of, you know, these kind of goofs in from their movie industry, the right. movie industry who are getting there late and, you know, sipping on martinis or whatever. But the real fans are up top or at home watching on TV for that matter. You know, just a few years ago, USC was kind of the toast of that town. Where does the town sit with USC after the disastrous opening week against Washington? Uh, I mean, it's you know, Lane Kiffin is is under siege, and, right. and he didn't really do himself any favors. How you saw yesterday? He had like this yeah, one man press conference. Yeah. So I mean, he doesn't. He's never really understood uh, the PR of the market. With somebody like Pete Carroll had mastered, um, and look, it's a. You know, it's a town where there are these old rivalries everywhere. Clippers, Lakers, Dodgers, Angels, Bruins, Trojans. And right now the pendulum has swung really back toward UCLA, which was unfathomable a few years ago. So, you know, USC is sort of like Texas. I mean, they are, uh, you know, these fan bases are, are, uh, are really upset and they want coaching changes. And at USC, I don't know that anybody ever really bought into Lane Kiffin as a head coach. Um, so I think that maybe there's even more vitriol there and even though he's recruited really well i don't see a way at this point that he can that he can turn it around i mean they're probably already in the mode i, I highly doubt they fire him this season or anything like that which doesn't happen at, at programs like usc in the middle of the season um but uh, you know i'm sure that they will have a new coach next year and it's a it's a primo job and i think one thing i find interesting is that in this market these former NFL coaches have done really well. Pete Carroll did really well. Now Jim Moore, Jr. at UCLA, is doing really well. Right. Um, so that's a little bit different than in the South, where you kind of see college coaches bounce around more. I'm not sure why um, that's worked so well in Southern California, but it really has. You know, last week it seemed like your name was all over Twitter um, because people loved the column you wrote about the Lamar Odom uh, kind of story. And Don and I last week, I brought it up in the beginning of the show, and I was like, I don't know how to talk about this because I don't want to be too TMZ about it, but there's definitely a sports story here somewhere, and I think that's what you did so good in your column is you were able to make it a – it didn't feel gossipy at all. It was a sports story, and it hit all of the the kind of things that are going on in, in Odom's life right now. I guess the thing I want to ask you the most is, do you think this guy will ever play in the NBA again? I don't see. I mean, I, I would love to say that he would, um, but I just don't know that any team at this point. I mean, he had four points a game last year, and, and people acted like that was acceptable because his previous year had been so miserable in Dallas. I just don't know that any team is going to be willing um, to put up with the off, the off court risk. Now, what's interesting about Odom is usually guys who carry that off court risk, okay, like a Michael Beasley, you know, people like that. You're also kind of risking your locker room with them. Odom is different in that way. His problems are all inside. He's actually a great locker room guy, even when he's going through, you know, hell on the inside. Um, so you're not going to get a guy who's ever going to be a cancer in the locker room. But I think there's this feeling now that you're you're taking tremendous risk as far as having to look after him, having to you know worry about him, and he's one of those people who won't really tell you how he feels because he's always I wouldn't call him the life of the party, but he's always got kind of this happy way about himself, and that's what's sort of tough. It's hard to read him sometimes because you don't know really everything that's going on with him. I mean, he he reminds me of sort of these kind of tragic comedians who you know we've lost or early in life, 
um, because they had these demons that they didn't really show, because they had these great personalities that kind of covered it up. And that's what Lamar reminds me of. I mean, Lamar is a really hard guy not to like. It's like almost everybody agrees Lamar Odom is, is just a golden soul. Um, you know, he's one of those people that when you're around, he just makes everybody feel good. Um, but I think maybe that's come at the expense of himself because, you know, to see what's going on here, at first you can dismiss it as, oh, it's hard craziness, it's TMZ. Um, but when you start seeing all these reports come out, you realize that, you know, something dark is really happening in this guy's life. And at this point, it's about more than basketball. It's about really kind of him getting help, rehab, survival, because he does have a whole lot to offer. I mean, and I don't know what way it's going to be. He's not going to be a front office type. I kind of doubt he's on TV either um, a whole lot. But there's something out there for Lamar Odom. Like, you know, he ran this AAU team that he had that he did as kind of a rebuke to his own AAU experience, which was completely out of control. Um, you know, it's little things like that. It's the way he is with kids. Um, there's just there's a spot for Lamar Odom as far as making a difference uh, in society moving forward. And I think that's kind of the higher stakes at this point than if he plays again. If he did play again, you know, I really think he would have to be a team like the Lakers, uh, maybe the Clippers that really understood him and had a star who kind of got it. You know, like Phil Jackson really understood how to connect with Odom, how to keep his head on straight and keep him going. And Kobe was great with him. Chris Paul was great with him. Um, but he needs someone like that, you know. And in another kind of culture, I don't really know that it works for him, and maybe he would have had these sort of problems earlier. The other thing, Steve, I've often I've wondered recently about Odom is if seeing the end coming to his basketball career mm. played any kind of a role in this sort of downfall he's had. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we talked to someone, I can't remember who it was, and they were, they were talking about how, you know, their whole life they had been, you know, known, I think it was a hockey player, he's saying, you know, my whole life I've always been a hockey player, and then when I wasn't a hockey player anymore, I didn't know what to be, and it was really difficult to transition from that. And I, I think that's probably what you were saying, like maybe he was thinking, I'm not going to be a basketball player anymore, what good am I, what, what value do I have now? And he's somebody who's always susceptible to celebrity culture. I mean, I remember profiling him in 08, and he had all these kind of Hollywood connections, and he was dating this actress who was actually a legitimate actress, Taraji Henson. Um, she's been in real movies, not like Kardashian or anything. Um, but so I think, you know, maybe he saw himself that way, transitioning that way. It's hard to get in somebody's head. Um, but, they, you know, he probably saw that the end was coming. Free agency came and went. There wasn't a lot of demand for him or any demand. Um, you know, he was seeing that it probably wasn't going to work out with the Lakers or the Clippers. It's where he wanted to be. And, and, and maybe that did, you know, who knows? I mean, you can't right. psychoanalyze the guys. You know, maybe that did play a role. I, I imagine that that's a real challenge for, for every athlete, you know, especially somebody who's been so identified with basketball since he was 14. I mean, really kind of anointed as the king of, you know, the New York City high school scene when he was 14 years old, 15 years old. You know, every time I've ever seen him on the Kardashian show or whatever, when you watch that show, all you can think about is how absurd the people on it are, how their life is so surreal, almost like, you know, this almost fake existence. But then when Lamar's on the screen, it's like, oh, here's a regular guy. Here's a guy I can relate with. Here's a guy I like to hang out with. Here's a guy I go to a bar with. It's like he's got that quality, even in the even in the mess of the Kardashian lifestyle, you can still 
find all these redeeming qualities in him. And I guess that's why I feel like I'm rooting for him so so much to be able to, to come out of this in whatever way will make you know will be fitting for him. I guess. And it's it's see it's a complicated situation because I would love to be able to say this whole thing is because of the Kardashians and the reality show. It would be so easy. But the fact is, he had his best season right. when that reality show was like in full force. He was and I remember, guy, I remember interviewing him and all the cameras were on us. I was just interviewing him off the side and he's like, hey, you're going to be on the show, you're going to be on the show. And he was kind of joking with me. But that was a year he won Sixth Man of the Year. He played so well. And so he can be comfortable in that environment. You know, and that's why look, someday if it all settles down, I'd love to ask Odom, kind of what was, you know, what sort of started this fall for him, and then, you know, hopefully what starts his his next rise, because he has, beyond those kind of people, you know, the Kardashians and everything, he has, he has so many people who love him, you know, people like Kobe and Chris Paul, who I think I wrote in that little story, they get people, they can get people who do things that they otherwise wouldn't do, and so you hope that right now they're kind of using their power, um, their gravitas to get in Odin's ear and get him to do the right thing. Because, right, you know, I'm sure he's surrounded by a bunch of handlers right now and, and kind of yes-men, and those guys are like that. When they, you know, there's a way that Kobe looks at Odin, and I've seen it on the floor, and I wish right now he could look at him that way. The Sportscasters with uh, Lee Jenkins, who writes for Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Last thing, it's going to be an interesting week for Sports Illustrated. I've already noticed there's been a real mixed reaction to this uh, this story about Oklahoma State. I, you know, I see people who are talking about what incredible journalism it is and, and how excited they are about it and how great it is that we have uh, journalists who report like this still and what great piece. And then I see this other kind of thing that surprised me. I, I think Whitlock is maybe one who, who's real in on it, this like, Oh, this is a cliche. The the crime here is that it was printed, and it feels like maybe Sports Illustrated is going to have a a, a a part of this is going to be kind of defending themselves in kind of some weird way. Uh, do you think about this at all, and what this week is going to be like as a Sports Illustrated writer with with the mm-hmm. immense kind of like focus that this story is going to bring to the whole SI world? I, I, you know, I haven't thought about it specifically like that, but I'll tell you what I do think about is the difficulty in this age of being an investigative reporter, where it's almost like your job, kind of, you do your job, and you do it well, and you turn it in, and the story runs, and then you sort of have to start your job all over again as far as defending yourself and why you did this and being open to kind of seeds from the university and from all these fans. And you just wonder, you know, People who do that now, who do invest real hard investigative reporting, um, just how difficult kind of culture makes it for those folks. And I wonder about sort of the next generation of writers, you know, who really want to go into that and are willing to sort of put themselves on the line where everything they do is sort of, there's a microscope on all of it. I mean, I don't really do a whole lot of that work. I've done some of them, but usually I, I write features for SI. My job's a little different than like the George Dorman you know, George Dorman, um, and some of our other investigative reporters. Um, but I just admire those folks because, you know, to have, to do the job, which is so hard, so hard to get that kind of information, and then, you know, have to be open to all the scrutiny afterward. Um, I hope that younger journalists still believe that that mission is worth it um, because I, I could see how some of them would, would be scared off of it, frankly. So you getting back into basketball now? Are we still going to get some other kind of random stuff, or is it time for you to get your focus back that way? 
Yeah, no, I get to, uh, I mean, training camp starting soon, so I've got a few different things lined up, and it's, uh, you know, it's a good time of year. It's going to be, there's so much, you think about it, so many new looks in the NBA this season. I mean, the Rockets is a new power. You know, how all these teams with their point guards returning are going to look, how the Bulls and the Thunder, you know, and the Celtics with Rondo, all those guys returning from knee injuries, how they're all going to look, whether Kobe's going to be the same or not. Um, you know, the heat kind of stays consistent, but to do, they're trying to do something as far as getting back to a final for a fourth straight year we haven't seen since the 80s. So there are going to be a whole lot of, uh, of great storylines again in the NBA. And I mean, really, it's, I think the NBA has entered a great age. Baseball's had some, some struggles. The NFL, you know, has its pitfalls. I think in a lot of ways, this is a, a wonderful time for the NBA. They have bankable stars that other sports uh, have been reluctant to establish. I think they have, and the NBA has taken advantage by letting its stars really get out there, uh, beat market themselves, sort of get some exposure, um, do stories with people. I like it's, you know, it's refreshing. You go into you know, baseball for some reason, they just haven't been able to build stars in the same way. And, and in, some, in some ways, the NFL too, even though the NFL has more. Thanks for the time, Lee. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate talk, it, man. Talk. All right, we want to thank Lee Jenkins and Kenny Albert for being on the show today. Don't forget that you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.sports-casters.com. You can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. If you play our Guess Fox Football Fantasy game, a couple of things about that. One, the game has officially been endorsed by Fox. And Fox is going to provide prizes for the season-long winner. Really? So it's really cool. Uh, Fox Sweet. is totally into it. And as you heard in the interview at the beginning of the show, Connie Albert knew all about it and uh, dropped quite a few hints for people playing the game. <laughs> uh, so if you do that, I definitely suggest you go back and listen to the Connie Albert interview. If you haven't already. Yeah, I didn't submit a guest last week because I don't know if I'd be allowed to win. No, we're not allowed to win, but we want to try to play with everybody. Okay. You know what I mean? So we'll make sure. And I think uh, Kenny Fang also forgot last week. But that's a great thing about this game. Another thing I wanted to mention, we have quarterly winners and season winners, and the season winner is going to be based on the best 16 weeks. Okay, cool. So everyone will get a chance to miss a week. And uh, also, nobody ran away with it last week. I would say that the quarterly prize is still well in the grasps of – anyone who might have started week yet. one. Uh, so get those emails to uh, guestfoxfootball at gmail.com. All right, so uh, I got the first one today. One more thing uh, before I pass it off to Don. Why do college sports insist on having preseason polls? <laughs> That's really stupid because they're stupid. Yeah. Uh, explain to me how. I'm going to try to do this without being a uh, homer, homer. But explain to me how. The national champion loses only two important players, brings back the best freshman class in college history, has a Hobie Baker candidate at forward, and doesn't get in the top ten. Not to mention, no one in their conference is in the top ten, and three of the teams 
that they beat out of the four to win the national championship the conference. are in the tur- no are in the top ten. Oh, Minnesota, North Dakota, and Massachusetts Lowell, who Yale absolutely dominated. Yeah. Oh, hey, uh, Massachusetts Lowell's number one. That, that, we talked about that a little bit with college. Uh, that's lazy. Notre Dame probably shouldn't have been ranked two last year. I mean, you can argue they earned it, but once they stepped onto the field, it was clear they weren't the second best team in the country. Oh God, these polls are horrible, and it's not just hockey. No, right. It's not just this one case. It's over and over and over and over again. And the problem is, is the the way, especially in, in college hockey and in football and in basketball, the polls that they use to determine postseason spots are based on these polls. And when you're not in them initially, it takes time to build yourself up. Yeah. I mean, this particular one I don't think has anything to do with it. And it's only a top 10, not a top 15, which I think is what they use for the tournament. But I just don't get it. Yeah, power rankings are ridiculous too. It's just like you said, these think because they actually count for something. But I right, power rankings are okay. That's for fun and that's an opinion. And they're silly though too. I guess the ESPN released their week two power rankings today, and uh, Kansas City, who gave up two points on a punt block, somehow dropped a spot. <laughs> so of course it they, I'm not sure what more they could have done. All right, my last thing this week. One last thing comes with a little bit of media here. Big game on Sunday. Yep. No, we should do. Whoever loses has to shave an eyebrow. All right. Hope you don't like your eyebrow. All right, that's an ad for Madden 25 between uh, Colin Kaepernick and Russell Wilson. And this is getting some play, this video, as though this is a real bet. Uh, that, that I think it's funny. Like the, I hope you don't like your eyebrow. <laughs> that part. But uh, I think it's hysterical. I think it would be awesome if uh, – the guy that actually loses the game follows through and even maybe has it by the time he gets to like the post game interview only has one eyebrow. I don't see that happening, but I do hope the guy follows through with the bet uh, because it'd be really funny and it would show like that these guys are fun and like real people and everything. I imagine what's going to happen if I had to bet something on it and I probably wouldn't cause I don't bet that much, but I would, guess what's going to happen is they're going to like release a picture of like their Madden character with one eyebrow or something stupid like that. But uh, my question for you as part of this, and I'll preface it by saying I don't have a story for this. What's the worst thing you've ever lost in a bet? Or it's the most humiliating thing you've lost in a bet? I don't have anything. I was trying to think of something. Shaving one eyebrow would probably be humiliating. And I don't have anything fun like that. I mean, I have some sort of bummer type things like i had to change our twitter avatar from oh. our logo to a picture of the capitals eliminating the sabers yeah. in the 98 <laughs> Eastern conference finals and keep it there for a week and that that really sucked that wasn't any good um those are fun you see those on the reddit nfl they have flair they call it like next to your name would be like your team's logo and there'd be flare bets all the time like you'd have to put a falcons logo up for a week yeah i love making those bets because that is fun it just sucks when you lose them yeah, so I don't have anything really fun. I've never done anything humiliating, but I hope the eyebrow. My last thing this week is if we were I hope, really good hosts, we would come up with one that we could update every week, like against each other, and eventually it would end with like. Yeah, what was that show with the Canadian guys? Kenny versus Spenny. Like that was the whole basis of the show: is they would bet ridiculous challenges against each other and have to do. Something well, email us something you want us to bet, and we'll consider it. Yeah, the well, sportscasters. At that's gmail. as much as we'll com. say. We'll, right. consider, we'll it. consider it. All right. So my last thing is, uh, I hope to see a starting NFL quarterback with one eyebrow next week. See ya.